0: Right. It is July 7th, 2021. We're in Hollywood, California at Sunset Sound Studio 2. It's 80 degrees in LA today, and we're here with Greg Renoff. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Good to have you, Greg. Yeah, thanks for having me in
0: You are, we've spoke, all of us together, a few different times, and obviously you're the author of the Van Halen Rising book, as well as Ted Templeman at Producers Life and Music.
1: Platinum Producers Life and Music.
0: Platinum Producers Life and Music, which we, Paul and I both have read. It's
2: a fantastic book.
1: Thanks.
0: It's amazing. I wanted to give one away that was signed, but they're all sold out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. We probably can arrange that. We'll, We'll get a restock going, sure.
0: So let's just kick it off with Van Halen. Where were you? What was her name? Who were you with? When was the first time you heard Van Halen? Um,
1: I was probably in uh, my bedroom at home, and I probably heard Jump for the first time. But I, you know, I always say that I almost certainly had heard Pretty Woman on the radio. So this would have been like 1982, and I was in, in uh, freshman in high school. But uh, Jump was the one that really connected with me. So I'm a I'm an 80s high school kid. I was in high school between '83 and '87, so um, I was a little bit too young for the original. These sessions here that were so um, important to Van Halen's career, but uh, yeah, that for me was the 1984 album, watching Martha Quinn and, you know, introduce Jump, and I'd get all excited, like, you know, we'd gather on the television, then you'd sit there and you'd wait for another hour through all videos you didn't want to see, getting ready to see the next version of Jump, the next play of Jump, and then Panama, so that was what made me a fan was the 1984 album.
0: That's so interesting um, that that's how you got introduced to Van Halen, but that also was a pivotal time in Van Halen. (laughs) career their albums and obviously in the books uh, you write about that period with Ted going up to the 5150 house and uh, all that you know went on at that time
1: yeah it's 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 for me it's uh you know it's a very uh surreal feeling you know to think about when I was a like a teenager like everyone else watching Van Halen and then have the honor to do the book with Ted it was was incredible and so yeah very uh very much aware of how cool that is and yeah it's yeah exactly what it was like I was a 14-year-old kid, like everybody else, watching MTV and watching Van Halen videos, Hot for Teacher, and Panama, and Jump, and then, yeah, then I got to write the book with Ted, so it was incredible.
0: Those videos. Have you seen the Jump video before? It's incredibly cheesy. Yeah, I have. <laughs> it's been a long time, though. <laughs> oh, those are amazing. So you're from Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, originally, I'm from New Jersey. I live in oh, Tulsa really? now, yeah. Paul was born in New Jersey. Yeah, he
0: mm. was.
1: Yeah, so... uh I'm a, yeah East Coast roots, but I now live in the Midwest in Tulsa. And so yeah,
0: Kane's Ballroom. I've been to that spot. It's a great yeah. Uh, it's that's venue. really an
1: incredible, incredible venue. I uh, have uh, seen a number of shows there, and it's uh, the history going back to the 1920s. It's really, really like a place like this. When you walk into Sunset Sound, you can feel the history, and the same thing with Kane's Ballroom. You just realize just the the absolute um, artist after artist of just incredible stature when you walk through. Uh, Canes especially there's just a whole wall of everyone from uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard to to Mountain to Bonnie Raitt, like anyone you can ever think of has played Kane ballroom there. And so yeah, did the big bands play? Yeah, there was the, there was the Western Swing bands. That was what the ballroom got to start. So it's been, uh, yeah, it, it's been in operation that long. So
0: probably like eighty years or something. Yeah,
1: something like that. I'm not sure exactly when it opened, but it's uh,
0: it's like the Palladium. It kind of looks like that layout. I went there with Gary Clark Jr. actually, and uh, mm-hmm. beautiful spot. I like Tulsa.
1: Yeah, it's a cool little city. It's been really good to me, so I'm really I'm like living there.
0: What or how did you uh, get involved with writing the Van Halen book? Were you just keeping notes for a long time you're like, wait, maybe I have enough here? No, to- it wasn't
1: quite like that, you know. Um, so I ended up after college going doing a master's in um, history and then a PhD. I did my PhD PhD in American history at Brandeis University in Boston, and uh, you know, I wanted a traditional academic history career and I ended up getting a tenure track job and I ended up moving to Missouri and uh, teaching college there. And, uh, you know, I'd always been a Van Halen fan and always as a kind of a release for me, I would look at old issues of Billboard magazine or whatever, just for fun. It was, it wasn't really connected to what I was normally teaching. I was teaching, you know, what you'd kind of consider like courses on the civil war, courses on, um, globalization, like typical college history courses. And this was always just sort of a fun aside for me to do this. And, uh, I ended up uh, um, remembering, and re- well, remembering, and then reading a bunch of old interviews with Van Halen from Circus Magazine, some other magazines where uh, David Lee Roth would talk about wet t-shirt contests and their backyard parties, and you uh, know that kind of got me intrigued. And I ended up um, doing a little fishing around on Facebook, and I actually ended up talking to a guy who owned a biker bar in uh, the valley called the Rock Corporation, it was in Van Nuys, and I talked to him, and he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, we just." pack them in you know whatever this would have been in 1975 and you'd pack three four hundred people in this club and van halen would play and there'd be a wet t-shirt contest and so he told me these stories and then you know it just started snowballing from there initially um, it was only meant to be sort of a fun little I was, was thinking like maybe I'll write something small for van halen news desk and again I'm you know I'm um, I'm an assistant professor of history at that time it was never meant to be like I never had this master plan but it just um, became this sort of all-consuming thing for me. I mean, I loved Van Halen. I started to realize there's this incredible story here of how these guys met up with David Lee Roth and then really slogged it out for years and years. I mean, that was for me beyond the immigrant aspect story, which I thought was really inspirational about the brothers coming to America, not speaking in English and and um, really achieving the American dream, which I thought was an important part of it. But the other thing was just when I started to realize that everything I knew about Van Halen, and I think most people kind of knew about Van Halen, was either some very fuzzy stuff about their early years in Pasadena, and then you know everything after 1978 because of the um, because that's when they became famous. But and I realized they, they they were playing in San Bernardino, Pomona, uh, Seal Beach, Venice. Uh, Venice, like all over the city, and I started to realize, well, wow, there's this incredible just work ethic story here and how these guys got so good. And that was for me too. What was really um, kind of clear was that how does a band like Van Halen get so good that they can upstage Sabbath on a fairly regular basis? Uh, well, that's become, they played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shows and even starting back in Pasadena when the backyard parties, when this would have been 74, and I started hearing those stories from locals who really were super helpful to me. A number of the people who, you know, for them, you know, it was, it was uh like a central, formative part of their upbringing was seeing Van Halen. Like it was their band, and they, you know, they felt part of it. Not like they were part of the band, but they were, you know, we were there when like you know, the helicopter came and flew overhead in Pasadena and said, "Disperse, disperse." And you know, David Lee Roth waved to them, waved to wave the, to the cops in the helicopter. And um, those those folks were absolutely instrumental because they started talking to me about their memories of it. You know, so the Van Halen Rising book was meant to be um an ascent to fame book but told as much from the perspective of the band as much as i could from interviews that those guys had done where they talked about it but also from people who were kind of like a rodney bingenheimer or a, a kim fowley you know, and also people who were, who were less known who just along the way you know did things to help van halen or just were there for their eyewitness parts of it so um you know when i really discovered that there was this i don't want to read five, six year block of time, which really nobody knew anything about. That's when I got motivated to do the book. I was like, well, this is this is actually pretty consequential. And as we're going to talk about, I think about how did Eddie Van Halen get so amazing on guitar? How did David Leroth develop his stage charisma? All that stuff didn't just sort of magically happen once they got the record deal. That was sort of all there, kind of um, had been baked in the cake from their years of of playing um, all over the place.
0: With the Rock Corporation, I remember Doug Messenger, the great Doug Messenger. Uh, that's what he likes to be called. The great Doug Messenger said that Eddie was, had his back to the audience at the Rock Corporation and didn't want people to steal his techniques because when he was 14 years old, the 17-, 18-year-old kids were coming over to the house to see this Oof. young kid just go absolutely you know, ham on this homemade rig. And
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the stories you hear from people. I mean, I, I heard that less than I expected from people um, about that, but I always thought the thing was that nobody could really probably play it the way Eddie could play it anyway. I mean, that yeah. was the thing that even... I, I talked to quite a few guitar players and some who were you know quite accomplished, uh, who were peers or friends or you know friends or peers of Eddie's, and they sort of were you know, this kid was head and shoulders above everybody, even like kids who were three, four, five years older. Um, one gentleman in particular told me I thought it was a great way of thinking about it. He, he saw Eddie first time he saw Eddie play was around 1971. So Eddie would have been about 16, maybe seventeen years old, and he saw them um, at a park in Pasadena eddie alex and a bass player named mark stone who was their their longtime bass player playing cream songs and uh on a basketball court and he said he was watching this kid play and he said i've seen guys at the forum like pro guitar players aren't as good as this kid this kid's 16 playing on this like blacktop you know he said it was just there was just a uh, something extra from him even when he was um, you know he hadn't developed the two-hand tapping or a lot of the stuff we would associate with the eddie van halen style just to sort of um, left-hand-of-the-neck, right-hand-picking, blues type of stuff that would have been like Clapton or Jimmy Page. He said it was just incredible how great he was.
0: Just a trio back
1: then? Yeah, they were just the three the three no, guys. No singer. Uh, Eddie sang. Oh, he sang. Right, Eddie sang.
0: Do you remember, the? you know all the clubs around town and
1: obviously have lived here a long time. Do yes, you remember uh, the Rock Corporation?
2: I do, if it's that place, was it off of Woodman? Do you know the street it was
1: on? I can't remember. It was, it yeah. was, it was. Uh, I, I an,
2: remember it. I just can't remember exactly where it was.
1: There was another place called Walter Mitty's, um, Eros Bogarts, and these would have been places that they would drive, like miles and miles and miles, and that there's kind of the Scooby-Doo van that Eddie and Alex had to haul their gear in, um, you know, and they were also playing here in, in Hollywood at Gazaris and then the Backyard Parties and wherever else they could find to play. But they, you know, had a real work ethic because those were five 45-minute sets, mm-hmm. you know, Roth would end the set saying we'll have to take a pause for the cause or whatever, and they go smoke a cigarette outside and drink a beer and then go back and play for bikers. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it's it was yeah, it was you know, it was not exactly uh, glamorous, right? But those guys were uh, committed to their their craft.
0: And they had uh, like a repertoire of songs. There was like four hundred numbers they knew because they'd go to Venice and they'd play Eagle stuff, and then they'd go out in the San Bernardino and play heavier tunes. Um, and they were a cover band.
1: Yeah, and um, a lot of uh,
0: bootlegs of them doing Kiss songs of all kinds of stuff.
1: They uh, and there's. Uh, Roth talks about this in his biography as kind of entertaining, where he would say sometimes, you know, we'd have a request, and I didn't really know the lyrics, but he would sort of scat his way through it, like, Scooby Dooby Dooby, and then, like, there's a chorus, and then, like, he's like, People are drunk, they don't notice, but you just sort of fake your way through it. But yeah, they had a a tremendous um, repertoire. And that, for me, you know, always goes back to the fact that Eddie and Alex, even from the very beginning, prided themselves on learning everything note for note. So this would have been in 68, 69, when, um, their, some of the friends I interviewed for the um, for the Van Halen Rising book would talk about. They'd see them at you know like a middle school assembly, and they'd be playing monkey songs, and they were like you know playing it pretty close to the record. Those guys really were dedicated to the craft. I mean that was the thing. It wasn't just sort of like oh this sounds good enough. But part of the repertoire was they knew Eddie had an incredible ear, and uh, Alex was an incredibly talented drummer, and they but they also um, <laughs> worked really hard to learn the the, uh, the music. I'll tell you one one funny story I loved to love to tell, which is the there's a band, um, maybe they recorded here. I don't know. Called Captain Beyond, they were sort of a Deep Purple offshoot band. They were kind of a heavy, prog rock band. Mm, okay. And they had a they had an album that came out around '72, and um, there was a song on the album called "Raging River of Fear," and it was kind of a, um, a six or seven, eight minute long song, kind of like you'd imagine like a Deep Purple song, and um, Eddie, Alex, and Mark Stone, who had been probably called Mammoth at the time, learned the song. And uh, when I talked to someone who I interviewed for the Van Halen Rising album, he said, like, I was listening to it, and I realized that's not right. And Eddie and Alex never made a mistake. They didn't make mistakes like this. There's something not right about the song. So I went to Eddie after after the gig, and I said, Eddie, you guys, what was with the the, 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 uh, Captain Beyond song? It's not right. He goes, yeah, the record had a skip in it like, what? He's like, we only have one copy of the record. And the record skipped, so we had to make up that part. <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. how much they, they were committed to learning the songs, no for no. So they only had, you know, they had only afford the one copy of the record. They weren't going to buy another copy and the record had skipped. And so that was, they just sort of like filled that like three seconds or four seconds in because he said that he couldn't understand it because he said they always were so precise on what they did.
0: Captain Beyond, July 1972, recorded at Sunset Sound Recorders Hollywood. Oh, it was done here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you know about uh, Sunset Sound in those days? When did you learn about the studio?
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, I knew, I mean, I was a pretty avid reader of liner notes. I mean, I just certainly didn't know anywhere near, you know, I just do a little fragment of what I know now about Sunset Sound from doing the books. But um, yeah, I had known, of course, the Doors had worked here. I was a big Doors fan and and, uh, actually that was that was the first band I really actually really loved in middle school, the Big Doors revival. If you guys remember that happened around the time of um, the Apocalypse Now movie when, yeah, yeah, that big like the the um, cover Rolling Stone came right. So I sort of. Um, glommed onto that and was was listening to some of that stuff and um, knew about the studio and then if you you know would you read the liner notes and you see like Led Zeppelin 4 or whatever and stuff I was yeah I was always into the reading the I I wasn't uh, I had I even was buying vinyl records even when they were kind of impractical for me partially because like the tape sometimes you'd open the tape cassette tapes they'd be so small you could barely read the print but um, yeah
0: right.
1: Sunset Sound. yeah I mean it's like
0: What's, Paul, I've asked you this a hundred times, and I always – do you remember the first time you saw them? And, you know, people don't understand that – it's like, how could you not remember Van Halen? There's three bands in here right now. There's maybe three – and you were doing daytime and nighttime sessions then. So yeah, it wasn't, we were you doing would, split sessions. Yeah, I you mean, we
2: do the day sessions, and then we do the night sessions. So we'd have literally a six-band turnover in wow. a day. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so Van Halen coming in. It was just another. Oh wow! There's a couple young guys coming in to make another record. I mean, they yeah. you know they weren't known then, unless you were hitting the club scene and maybe knew that. Oh, that's that band from uh, Starwood or Gazaris right. or something whiskey. like that.
0: Did you go see them out? Uh, sorry to cut you off. Uh,
2: I don't recall ever seeing them. Because you Star went to Gazaris, I, I, I went remember. to. I went to the whiskey and the Starwood more <laughs> than I went to Gazaris, but uh, I don't remember seeing them there.
0: Was Gazari slimy kind of or? Yeah.
2: Gazzaris was more of a heavy metal place, I think. You know, I don't know. I don't remember going
1: there much. Gotcha. Yeah, my from what uh, I understand about Gazzaris, Gazzaris was a place that bands that mostly played covers played. So basically, if you played at Starwood, you had to play almost all originals, just like at the Whiskey, right? They weren't going to let cover, but so like bands that made their trade on cover songs would be at Gazzaris. And that's one of the reasons why the big that was the big leap for Van Halen in 76 is that they... Basically, they had enough original songs, but they were still making money at Gazaris, and they basically had to go to Bill Gazari and say, "We quit. We're going to Starwood," yeah. and they they made that leap to be a quote unquote all original band where you play, you know, almost all originals when you play.
2: Plus, you know, I recall, if I'm right, you know, probably in the early '80s or late '70s that Gazares was doing the hair bands. Yeah, right. You that know, would have been like the eight, right? The you 80s. know, that's right. And I was, I wasn't really into the hair Bill, bands, but that's what right. was playing there.
1: Yeah, I think that really so um when I know you guys had Rodney in here and uh yes. what a legend. He was um when he's talked about seeing Van Halen, I interviewed a friend of his too named Hernando Cartwright, who was with Rodney and he said they were like had left I guess they had left the whiskey and they were buzzed and they were kind of like walking past Guzari's and like, they were just like, it was kind of like sound like a raucous crowd and like this loud band and they were like, let's go in here and like, why are we gonna go in here? I don't know, let's go in. And they walked in kind of on a, Hernando said it was just almost like on a lark. It was just like, oh, what the hell, before we go back to the car, let's walk in here. And that's when they saw Van Halen for the first time. On stage. Yeah, like like Dave was doing this, you know, talking to the girls and sort of had this whole vibe and Rodney was like, wow. And Rodney talked about how they had a really good following of teenage girls in the room watching Van Halen, kind of watching Dave. And he said, like, oh, you know, when the girl, you know, obviously Rodney knows when the girls are into something, they're ahead of the guy. He's like, that; they're ahead of the curve. You watch for uh, an artist that can attract a big female following. That usually gives you a clue that there's a, you know, there's something really, really good going on there. And that's when they talked to Dave after the show and said, like, you know, what's, you guys play originals? He goes, yeah. We, you know, of course, Roth probably said, we have a 100 originals. I mean, I, they probably had like 20 at the time. But, um, you know, he, he, he. Um, Roth, they were good enough, and Roth was persuasive enough that that's when they went the next, whatever the Monday, and banged on the door at the Starwood office and said, "You got to hire Van Halen." And well,
0: we'll cut you short though. Rodney says that he was the one that went to Eddie Nash, and he went to Eddie Nash's office, and he said, "I I have this band Van Halen yeah. that they 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 sell a lot of beer to the people, yeah. and the girls love them." Yeah, and he's. He Eddie Nash said, "Yeah, book him down here because Eddie because Rodney was DJing at the Starwood." Right,
1: Rodney without a doubt was the one who banged on the door at the Starwood and basically okay. said, hire. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it said you got oh, to hire Van Halen. you, you got to hire Van Halen immediately. Like basically, and I, you know, I the way Hernando told the story was that um, that at first they were like, "I don't like the you know, Gazaris. Why would I? Well, you know, why would we want to book a cover band? Basically, like, oh, they got originals and they attract a lot of beer drinking beer drinkers and girls like them." And so, yeah. So um, yeah, Unsung Hero Rodney was really, really a, an amazing figure in the scene that we talked about earlier, and he's just uh, yeah, he was important.
0: Because yeah, they had played, you know, originally I thought it was just a couple times they'd played Starwood, but they had been playing there years.
1: Yeah, they played there. I mean, I think they played there for.
0: I mean, every couple months they'd play there.
1: Yeah, they played there for several months, and then they then they made the leap to the whiskey. I mean, the whiskey reopened in end of '76. You may remember that the whiskey had kind of been shuttered for a while
2: yeah I, I do remember something about that
1: and so um one of the things that ended up happening was the um i say mario hired uh, marshall burl and maybe someone else to start booking the whiskey and that's when marshall who later managed van halen in 78 uh spoke to kim and was like what bands do you like With kim fowley and kim one of the bands that kim said well, well there's a band called van halen you should check them out and that's when. Rodney, uh, excuse me, that Marshall got turned on to Van Halen, but that's when, that would have been when Devo was coming, Blondie, Tom Petty, that was sort of that new wave, yeah. new wave punk revival. So the whiskey reopens and suddenly it's this huge, and Kim was very instrumental with that. Kim, Marshall were the, were the guys who were really getting um, the local acts in there and then getting some of these bigger national acts in there to kind of make the, star, um, the whiskey into a, uh, a big big venue again. But it had been, it had been closed for quite a, know, some months or something like that.
0: Devo was, it's, it's funny, all those bands you just listed, even Tom Petty, Rodney Broke. Uh, yeah. He was such an effective filter on music to, you know, for everybody. And he was a journalist, too, that he would write about these bands. Uh, Devo was the big Warner Brothers act at the time. Punk's gigantic in uh, Hollywood. Paul, what do you remember about the punk music and the... And mid to late 70s was that really
2: it wasn't my was thing a flash? I, remember, I remember going to cbgb's in new york oh you did and go and there. And oh, well we know. were in there i think we were there for the aes show and we had a bunch of the, you know some of the staff was with me and That's we cool. went into cbgb's <laughs> that was a wild place but that i think the punk scene was bigger there the punk scene right. here I wasn't definitely not in. Okay. It me. wasn't as big
0: though as a lot of people make it out to be. Not everybody in the world was listening to punk at that time. It was disco yeah, yeah. and disco uh, and rock and roll. Yeah. Um, moving forward, I we have always asked this. Everybody that goes or had went to the shows in those days was blown away by Van Halen. They couldn't believe what they just saw. They're telling their friends about it. What happened with the Gene Simmons scenario? They go to Electric Lady, they cut the demo. Right nothing do you think gene have you heard have you talked to gene
1: i've never spoken to gene i would love to speak to gene um so gene and paul were in hollywood in the summer of 76 and they were staying at the sunset marquee so i interviewed jackie fox who was in uh runaways Mm -hmm. and so she and lita had kind of befriended them and they had met them and uh it's I, you know. Uh, Jackie told this great story about how she and Lita snuck into a soundstage. There was some television show that was being shot here, and they sort of got the word that Kiss was there, and they snuck back in, and then they saw them without their makeup or something, and they were like, "Oh," like, and so um, they're like, "They're just regular guys," you know, and so they just sort of like became like, you know, pals onto them, and and uh, Gene started asking them like, "What local bands? I want. We want to start a record label. What local bands do you like?" And he mentioned uh, Gene mentioned a band called The Boys which had members that went on to form a band called Dockin. So it had been George Lynch. So Dokken, um was on a lecture in the 80s and did some, um, you know, some big records and sold a lot of records. But there was another band called Van Halen. And so that's one of the reasons why um, Gene and Paul, along with Rodney, kind of get them. Like, basically, Rodney was telling them, you know, what, who do you like, Rodney? Van Halen. You know. And so uh, the girls from The Runaways were saying Van Halen. So Gene goes and sees them, um, I think he sees them the first night at Gazari's. He goes and sees them and he's like, okay, I'll, I'm going to check this band out again. And he goes, he goes and checks them out a second time. And that's when he really sees how incredible Van Halen is and then kind of goes backstage with no makeup on and says, I want to take you guys to New York. Um, to answer your question about the, the, the reason why the deal didn't happen, you know, I did a lot of work on this in the Van Halen Rising book. Um, so Gene was interested enough that, yes, he put them on an airplane, I believe it was the first time Eddie and Alex had ever been on an airplane, I think, and wow. flew them flew them to New York to record Electric Lady. I
2: wonder why in New York.
1: Well, because Kiss was rehearsing at SIR there for...
2: Oh, they were in New
1: York. They were in New York, and they okay. were going to go on tour for Love Gun. And so Gene does the demo with them. That's on YouTube. You can hear it. You know, we call it the Gene Simmons demo, or it's just the Electric Lady demo. And um, then... What he also does is he wants to get he wants to get the backing of Bill Coin, who's Kiss's manager, to basically back Gene on this project, I think because they were trying to form a record label and whatever else, so he wants to basically get the company buy-in from his manager. And so um, what ends up happening is that Van Halen auditioned for Bill Coin in New York at SIR using Kiss's equipment. So, I mean, I don't know how many songs they played and coin was like, yeah, yeah, OK, OK. And then the story goes, the next day, the guys in Van Halen don't have an inkling what the, what the verdict is other than Gene's like, you guys did great. You guys did great. And uh, that's when Alcoyne famously has them in his office on Madison Avenue and says, you know what, boys? I don't think there's any commercial potential here at all. I don't see any commercial potential. Um, you know, if you guys got rid of your singer, I mean, saying this right, just face it, you know, your singer. You know, hes in the it, room. Yes. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> he said that it, Roth talks about how that uh, coin was having a shoe shined at the time and he said, like, you know, I think you guys are OK. Maybe it's the music's OK, but I don't like the singer. If you, know, if you guys maybe wanted to switch out your singer, maybe you might do something, but I don't see it happening. And that was it. And so um, Gene's always said that he basically he had had them sign up a, a management agreement or whatever. I don't think it was a record contract, obviously, but it was like a management agreement. And he like tore it up. And send him home. Now, here's where the story really gets interesting is that so you can imagine how devastated this is for those guys. You you have Gene Simmons, arguably the most famous musician in the world, you know, kisses at the act- they playing Anaheim Stadium. They're huge. Gene Simmons can't get you a record deal, basically, right? You can't, you can't get it. And then so you fly back home with your tail between your legs. What Roth does is he takes this demo tape. Now, he doesn't tell Rodney, oh, guess what? Gene Simmons couldn't get us a deal. I mean, Rodney may have known, he may not have known, but he went and he goes, hey, he goes on the radio with KROQ with Rodney and goes, we just did a re- you know a demo in, with Gene Simmons in New York and it sounds great. I <laughs> not being negative, not like, oh, but we didn't get a record deal. It's like, They're how about that, really We're Van Halen's an electric lady, oh boy, you know, and he does this whole shtick and they play the song on the radio. And so I, I always thought that was like an incredible David Lee Roth moment there where you can imagine like the morale had to be the absolute, pit right the absolute bottom after after that and then you have dave flip it flip the script basically and then able to present this to rodney and rodney's like, oh, it goes Van and, you know he's all excited and they're playing the song on the radio and and you know to roth's credit i mean that was a right around the time where things started to change they got they, start, they got into the whiskey they got a higher profile and not soon after that's when marshall makes the call to ted um but you know to give gene all the credit and ted i've talked to ted about this many times he said you know Gene's the guy who really discovered them. He was the guy who was there first. And Gene, he's like, I just can't understand why it didn't get pushed over the the finish line. Because he said that Gene had his finger on it. He saw he saw what I saw basically. Gene saw the same thing I saw—the talent and the the potential. And uh, he said that um, you know it was uh, important also for him because he sort of had um, you know he was able to listen to the demo tape that Gene had, uh, had done with those guys and go, oh, here's like here's the songs. So it was basically a very good. Um, starting point for Ted as they were to work on putting the album together. They had 10 or 12 songs that had already been laid down. They had some, he had some like, oh, I like this song, I don't like this song as much or whatever, and had some ideas.
2: Of course, the big difference was um, Gene wasn't connected to a record company. Right, right. Whereas Ted, he had himself and then all the guys. Right,
1: right. Ted could get Mo Austin to come down the next day and sign the deal. There you Um, go. um, And I I think it was Gene who, who had basically figured out later, I could be wrong, that was that, was that Alcoyne, Whether whatever Coin thought about Van Halen, they could have brought Led Zeppelin in there and he wasn't going to sign them because he didn't want Gene to get distracted. Like basically Gene wanted to have like Apple records. Like the Beatles had Apple. He wanted to have like, I don't know, like Peach records for The Kiss where it would be like their own private label on Casablanca. And from what I think Gene, I think it's Gene, I could be wrong. Gene or maybe Paul said that they didn't want, Should I think about maybe it was Paul, that they didn't want Gene to be like, Become like oh I'm a, I'm a record mogul now and Kiss becomes second or whatever right oh, you know so okay so Put the I, focus on the band I keep the focus on the band so they sort of torpedoed it but um, yeah. yeah such such is history right and wouldn't they wouldn't be worked worked in here
0: David Lee that's Roth right. is a giant networker for him he's getting him the gigs at Gazares. he's driving all over they're all doing the flyers everything he's the one that takes the initiative to go to K Rock do you think that's a big part of why Van Halen kept him in the group at that point? I mean, because everyone's like, you got to
1: fire your singer. Yeah, I mean, I think that that stuff probably start, stopped pretty early on. I mean, I think in terms of like, oh, you mean about record executives? Yeah, I mean, I think th- those whatever negativity was being sent the way of Dave from people who saw Van Halen, I mean, I think there was probably also going to be a contingent of, of um, record executives who would have said, Eddie is too wild in his playing. I mean, there's, there's this sort of I think largely true narrative that pretty much everybody in Hollywood had sort of seen or knew about Van Halen because they you know you would drive by Gazzari's and it said Van Halen Van Halen Van Halen for years and people there were you know people had sort of either thought they knew what Van Halen was or had seen Van Halen, Um, and so I think yes I think there was definitely probably known to the brothers that there were people in the industry who had seen Van Halen and thought Roth was the weakest link of the group. Um, but that being said, you know, I think they, I think they were loyal to each other. I mean, I think that was the thing. I mean, that was the Alcoin message was basically, if you want to dump your, dump your singer, I mean, you know, but, um, they'd been together a long time at that point, four or five years, four years. Well, even Ted
0: tried to talk them out of the 25% each four ways. He's like, guys, you're not four equal parts, but they, they said, no, we're (sighs) brothers four (sighs) ways. We're splitting everything four ways.
1: Yeah. So that's the, that's the story where, um, so right before they finalized their deals at Warner Brothers, there was the question of how you were going to split the writing credits, and um, Ted advised the four members of Van Halen not to do a twenty-five percent split. He's just basically like, divide the money another way. You know, um, you know, if you want equal equal shares for everybody, let's think of a different way. You should you should think of a different way to divide the money up, but don't do this because it's going to cause problems down the road. Um, but they, you know. Yeah, they, they, Ted said they all were like, we're brothers, we're in this together. And he's like, okay. Um, it did cause problems later down the road with some, um, issues with writing credits. But, um, you know, Ted said he probably used the example of the Beatles, like, you know, basically like the Lennon and McCartney. McCartney didn't like yeah. give Ringo a writing credit because he was in the, you know, in the general vicinity when they wrote a Love Me Do or something like that, you know. Um, but, but, um, though they, uh, you know, it worked for a long time. I mean, that was the thing about Van Halen. It, the original, it worked for f- four or five, you know, six years, eight, seven years until it imploded. But, um, even after he had the, had the deal, right?
0: One thing I wanted to ask you uh, to backtrack a little bit. Your research is so extensive for your book, but you had even interviewed neighborhood, well, neighbors of the Van Halen mm-hmm. family over in Pasadena, right. and people had said that they would see Eddie Van Halen's guitars hanging from the clotheslines, and he'd be
1: back there striping them. Um, I mean, that's an amazing story. Can you... Yeah, so... um you know, I, I did 230 interviews for Van Halen Rising and wow. that was done over a period of about, I don't know, three or so years. Um, I would get on the phone with somebody and, uh, then I would, you know, I would tape record the interview and then I'd transcribe it. Um, and a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was a matter of just when I would get on the phone and talk to people, I would say, who else should I talk to? And they'd introduce me to somebody else. And so, yeah, a guy actually by the name of, um, David Shelton is the guy who told me that and he was a Pasadena guitar player. He still plays around LA. Very good guy. And, um, you know, Eddie was, Eddie, you know, for all the, the sort of the stories that you hear about Eddie was like turn his back to the audience. There was a number of guys i talked to just, Eddie was, you know, especially younger kids, like mentor them sort of. And this kid was like 16, 17 years old, not kid, but David was like 17 years old at the time. And he used to kind of stop over the house and, he, you know, like stop and he would go and find Eddie in the backyard and like Eddie would be painting his guitars or um just you would you know actually uh, Eddie taught him how to play some of the Van Halen songs and stuff and so yeah I mean that's the thing that's really amazing about the Van Halen story is if for anyone who's ever been past the house at Las Lunas I mean it's it couldn't be more different than the house that Roth lives in now I mean like Roth was living his father owned uh, the mansion over there in Pasadena the huge mansion on Bradford um, and the Van Halens are living in a two-bedroom tiny you know uh, post-World War II... Little track home. Track home, yeah. yeah. I mean, on Las Lunas. And so that's what I think... That was the other thing that was um, interesting to me as a historian was that contrast between Roth, whose father was an ophthalmologist and was very successful and had money, and then, you know, the, the Van Halens, who were, you know, basically like, you know, very work middle-class, working-class, real salt-of-the-earth people. And so, yeah, that, you know, there was no workshop to go to. It was like you paint them in the garage and you... that This uh, gentleman, David Shelton, told me that Eddie would put the the clothes hangers and hang them from the tree, like literally hang them from a tree or hang them from his mother's clothesline to dry in the sun, you know, he's repainting his guitars. So yeah, it's, it's an amazing story.
0: So Ted Teppelman, obviously we know the story, he comes to Starwood, is immediately blown away by Ed, calls the execs down, they go upstairs, right. sign something on a napkin, um, and bring him in this room and do 25 tracks, 10 rolls of tape. Amazing. What do you think at that point, after spending so much time with Ted, Obviously he's a great guitar player. He's very iffy about Dave. What was the branding that he thought was going to sell? How was he going to market this group because he was also a producer and obviously a VP at was he a VP at Warner yeah. Brothers? Yeah, was VP, a VP at, at Warner point, Brothers. Yeah. What do you think he saw in them other than the talent from Ed and there's a chemistry going on, but how was he going to brand them in this kind of weird age in music? Right. And
1: you know so when Ted talks about Seeing Van Halen for the first time, he talked about it first. He said it was almost like falling head over heels in love with a girl. Like you saw Ed, and it was just like, oh my God, this guy is so incredible. Um, Ted thought it was his playing, the way he soloed, was almost reminiscent of the uh, bebop jazz players that Ted had grown up as a trumpet player. In my Charlie Parker, he's talked about this. And sort of that for Ted, he said that was what connected for me. He said, I, I saw this group that was trying to do these, they were playing these like, squ- you know, quasi poppy hard rock songs with this guitar player who was almost like fusion-y in how he played. Um, So, but when he signed the group, I think that was where Ted had to really start to think about how to make this come together. And so that's part of the reason why I think the 25 song demo was done was he was, you know, they didn't play everything they knew, but he basically was like, okay, play me your best 25 songs. And that's what they did. They came in here and they played everything from. Uh, Running with the Devil, to Happy Trails. They played You Really Voodoo Got Me. They played Voodoo. Like, basically, much of the material was on the first... F- I mean, actually, stuff that was from all all six Van Halen records, if I recall correctly, but certainly a lot, uh, a lot of the stuff from the first two records. And so then, then it was a matter of thinking about what's going to make this band tick. And I think what ended up clicking for Ted was, among other things, was that he and Dave really had a very similar conception of what Van Halen was, I think, and was going to become, which was that Ted always talked about how he and Dave, even if, like again, Ted had some questions about Dave singing, he said, you know, we had basically the same record collection. We all loved the Motown stuff, the Stack stuff. He said, like, when I could talk songs with Dave for hours, like he'd be like, oh, yeah, he knew all that stuff, and a lot of kids, a lot of guys his age, didn't know that 50s stuff the way that Roth did. And so when... Ted said when he heard Van Halen, he heard this incredible, earth-shaking, world-changing electric guitar playing that he thought was so incredible that he wanted to share with the world. But he said he also heard um, a real pop side of things where, for example, maybe an underappreciated part of that would be Michael Anthony's vocals. He said that when I would hear them, they did the harmonies with Mike and Ed together. He said, it sounded like the Beach Boys to me. You know, like in Feel Your Love Tonight. He said there was like this real pop thing. And he said they were, and those guys were so upbeat and so happy. He said they were just like, you know, they weren't a heavy metal group like Deep Purple or like Alice Cooper. You know, they weren't like a dirge. They were like, obviously they were kind of like a hard rock or heavy metal group. But he said they were much more upbeat. And he said, I wanted to make it sort of a, he called it like a sun California hard rock thing, which is what Ted tried to do with Montrose. Mm-hmm. And I mean tried to do meaning that that was this, like, he said, Ronnie and I had talked about this, about, you know, instead of doing the six-minute hard rock song, let's do three-minute songs and just make these incredibly short but kick-ass guitar solos and these super powerful riffs, like on the Montrose record. That record didn't really sell all that much out of the gate. And so that's kind of where the, the blueprint for that kind of started. And then Ted um, and Dave, I think, were able to sort of um, see their way forward that. And I don't mean that they, those guys like sort of like sat down and reshifted everything, but there were some songs that were kind of, if you listen to the 25 song demo, there's a song called um, like Light in the Sky, Peace of Mind. There's a couple of songs that are more like moody. They're like minor chords. And it's, it's not the sort of party rock, clap along Van Halen stuff, which is, you know, Ted's like, it was good but it really wasn't what I wanted Van Halen to be. I wanted I wanted some dark stuff on the record. I wanted Running With The Devil, I wanted Atomic Punk, you know, but I also wanted the Jamie's Crying," the Fear Your Love Tonight, the You Really Got Me stuff that sort of was a, was a um, uplifting thing.
2: Van Halen anthems.
1: Right, right, part, like a party type of thing.
0: Paul and I discussed that before. I think my notion is that Ted, didn't never never moved into singles territory with Montrose, so he wanted to get it right this time.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, that was the thing that, that um, you know, one of the things I really learned from the book with Ted, and I can only really speak for Ted's perspective on this, is that Ted, you know, felt an enormous, as as being, as in, having been a recording artist himself at Harper's Bazaar and having been on the, um, the other side of the glass and knowing how it felt when you worked hard on a song and it didn't do very much. I mean, Ted had the experience of, the, he did the song with Lenny Waronker with Harper's Bazaar, the "Feeling Groovy" song, which was a big hit. So their first song was like this tracked top here. top ten song. Yeah, tracked here, yeah, top ten. Uh, I think that was Western. There was some stuff tracked here, but um, top ten hit. Feel and then Groovy after th- that, after that, it was like they never really they never really retained that level. And I think for Ted, he always took it really hard for his artists when they didn't they didn't sell. And he said that I was, you know, I really thought Ronnie had. And, you know, Sammy had done this incredible record, Danny There was such a great record and it didn't sell. He's like, it just b- would bother me so much. And he said, I, my mistake was that I didn't put, a sing- I didn't find a song that was a good enough single for them. And that was the reason why Ted was supported and wanted You Really Got Me put on the Van Halen debut. That was a song they were already doing. Ted said when he saw them at the Starwood, they did You Really Got Me that night. But he wanted that because he said... You know, it's like look. It was kind of it was already a a, an established song, and people record um, the record uh, executive like Ted knew that DJ would probably be more likely to give a song like, "Oh, you really got me." It's a good song. Let me give this band a chance um, out of the gate, rather than sort of like, "Who's this band, Van Halen?" And they're playing this music that's kind of out of fashion. So um, yeah, he he definitely felt as if that he didn't do the proper calculations with Montrose even though that record now is considered to be like sold 2 million copies and considered to be sort of a, an, an ultimate classic but yeah
0: that's funny because You Really Got Me was the first Van Halen song put on a playlist at K-Rock
1: yeah that makes sense right that would have been that would have come out in yeah February or March 1970 and of course and that's the thing like David already built the rapport with Rodney and he knew those guys and so yeah like mm. I say Rodney was uh, was there before it even, even happened um, and saw it I mean he saw the potential too you know, that's the thing about the Van Hill story, too. There were people, for all the people who were like, oh, it's just another rehash of Led Zeppelin and this, this music's over. I mean, that's kind of was the narrative for a lot of these record executives. They would see this band like, "Oh, you know, uh, disco's big now. Soft rock, the Eagles are big. Linda Ronstadt's big, right? And it's sort of like, it's over and punk is coming now from the UK and punk's the next big aggressive thing. There were, there were some people like Rodney who saw, you know, could see, see through that.
0: Speaking of Montrose, there's a great interview with Denny Carmasi that Dweezil and I did. It's up on our YouTube. If anyone's interested, he's an amazing drummer and a great story. How did you get in touch with Ted?
1: How did I get in touch with Ted? Well, that's a good question. Ted. he read the Van Halen Rising book? Because there's tons of books on Van Halen. Well, I talked to Ted um, while working on the Van Halen Rising book. I actually ended up contacting um, a journalist who had written an article about actually the the passing of Ronnie Mantras, if I remember correctly. Ronnie unfortunately committed suicide, and um, this journalist had written a nice tribute to Ronnie. And I wrote to her and I said, "How did you get in touch with Ted? I'd love to talk to him. on this book on Van Halen." And she said, "Oh, just write to the Doobie Brothers." So I wrote to the like you know info at doobies dot com, and I and the uh, person who was running their, whoever runs their office, like forwarded it along to them. That's how. But yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> That's how I got in touch with that. Incredible. So, um, and I, you know, I got I, He emailed me back and, and I said, I just want to talk about, you know, the fir- the first Van Halen record. He said, oh, okay, great. Give me a call. And, you know, and then he talked to me and it was, it was awesome. I mean, it was just, yeah, he was um, very, um, you know, very nostalgic in a good way. And it was like, you could tell it was this inc- incredible, I mean, beyond the record sales, just how much he loved working with Van Halen, that it was like, you know, one of those things that really sticks with you for your whole life. It was just like such a great experience working with those guys. So he was, you know, it was, it was, you could tell it was easy. He had loved talking about it. It was fun.
0: Uh, Ted originally comes into Sunset Sound. Was it Feeling Groovy the first time he had came into Sunset? He had produced uh-huh. an album before that? I don't know. No, he, he came he in.
1: Uh, I, I know he came in for, um, so Feeling Groovy was done at Western, I believe. And then when, I, I think i was right.
0: 100%. I'll 10 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was. But go ahead, well, carry on.
1: So, when Ted came into Sunset with Leon Russell, which I think was the first time, I could be wrong. I think that was the first time. They did um, two songs called uh, Raspberry Rug and something called um, Listen to the Darkness or I, I Can Feel the Darkness or something. Those were done for the Harper's Bizarre record. So, the first, what ended up happening was Feeling Groovy came out as a single as a standalone single back in the day, right? You put out a single and if it bombs, well, guess what? The record company hasn't spent any money. But because Feeling Groovy did well, um, Lenny calls in the guys from Harper's Bazaar and says, we're gonna make a record and then gets the wrecking crew in here. And so like Glenn Campbell and Carol Kaye and all these people and um, Leon come in and they they work among other places at Western, uh, they worked here, at least that's as far as I know, they worked the session. The Leon session was done here at Sunset.
0: When is the first time you met Ted Templeman, Paul? Do you remember around what time?
2: Well, I think I met him through Don Landy. Because um, the engineer was always the first in and the, and the last out. So when I was, you know, maybe I'd bounce in the studio, I would see Don first before the session would start. Producers weren't necessarily here right at the downbeat. I mean, or right at the setup, setup time. So it's got to be late 70s, you know, like 76, uh, 77 is when I met him. Oh,
0: sorry, when they came in here.
2: Yeah. So I didn't meet him prior to that. I didn't meet him on the early uh, Little Feet stuff. I, I was too young then. So that's probably about the time.
0: And Don Landy, which Peggy McCreary and yourself had mentioned he was just a whiz. He knew everything. He was giving you suggestions on gear to oh. buy. He was
2: one of the, the top engineers that worked here.
0: And his girlfriend ran your other studio, the traffic desk at uh, Sound she, Factory? She
2: did. She did. She, um, you yeah, know, Gail, she, she ran our, <laughs> our traffic department over there. What a time. So what's the tra-
1: what is the traffic department?
2: Well, the traffic is, we call it traffic. It's, it's the people who book the studio. I see. I so see. it's, you know, all the traffic goes through them. I and get it. So, you know, they, they book the sessions, they book the engineers, they book the
0: assistants.
1: I see. I so they yeah. have to make sure there's not a double booking and someone's showing up and... Right. right
0: yeah. Right. It's what okay. Phil does now. That's the traffic office in there. Yeah. Shout out cool. Phil McConnell. Um, so, Ted speaks so highly of Sunset Sound in the book, mm-hmm. which was so nice, and Paul finished the book. I've read it. He loves Studio One, and that's where he wants to do Van Halen One.
1: Yeah. So. Um, Ted, that's my recollection, is that when Ted worked with Leon, now that I think about it, they worked in Studio One. Mm. Um, The echo chamber was used on a lot of that stuff, and that Ted said that all the stuff that he heard coming out of Sunset, and his recollection of working in there was that that room had a certain ambiance to it. He said... He described it, his metaphor was like it was almost like walking on ice, like you'd walk, you'd think you were doing you were going just fine, and then suddenly you something would slip. And he said that that was what made it exciting, is that you this he said um rooms like Amigo were EQ'd very flat. Like it was basically like you kind of knew it was very I predictable. Room, kind of yeah. predictable, right? And that that was a much live room, and it was also he said you, you didn't always know what you were gonna gonna get. And so the first thing that they did, Don and um Ted did was Cold 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 in Studio One where they put, um, they put a, a riser and they had um, Richie, I think it was Richie Hayward, on the drum riser and they created that huge drum sound for Cold Cold Cold. Because that came out so well, that's when they went back and they did Rock Candy in the same room a year later with um, Danny. Yeah.
0: But Rock Candy was done in this room. Well, 100%. We Danny Carmassi told me this. Oh, he did? Yes.
1: Okay. Well, I'm going to disagree great, on that. Great. I'm going to disagree. disagree. I'm going to disagree strongly on that. I just yeah.
2: unfortunately, I don't have the invoices going back that far, so I can't tell you exactly. But so you I, got to I, talk to the I, guys on I, that. Yeah. I, yeah.
0: Well, Denny's mistaken. Can we just get something out of the way right now? Paul talked to Ted on the phone a, th- a couple months ago. Paul or Ted seems to think eruption was done in two. We've always thought eruption was done in Studio One. Can we get that clarified? Sh-
1: well. Um, if you look at the tape boxes, it says one. I mean, could the tape boxes be wrong? But I, I would never, I would never suggest that Don Landy made a mistake on the tape boxes. All no, but they would
2: flip, you know. So these sessions weren't always, you know, back in the day, or even now. You know, uh, they start a record and they, they do some of it in. So they maybe they start it in Studio One, right. and then they run out of time, or they decide to do something in another room, different. Right, right. So and they go to two. Yeah. But the tape box doesn't change. In all
1: in all seriousness, yeah. So, um, yeah, I I think the tape. Don remembers Studio One. This tape box is Studio One. So, in all seriousness, I think it is Studio One. And so, yes, that Don and Ted don't remember why they got bumped out of Studio Two or they moved. But basically, the last two days of tracking, which would have been September seventh and uh, uh, September seventh and eighth, I think, of nineteen seventy eight are in studio one and the picture that Don took, that great picture shows them in studio one. And that's when um Eruption and Jamie's Crying, which was with the last that was written in in that room. Um oh, and wow. the uh, if you look at the tape boxes, which is kind of interesting too, that um which I was able to access when I did Van Halen Rising is that there's um it says guitar solo. Guitar the, solo. And then it's like right you're like Well you see, I've got the i
2: I've got the invoice. And then there's like and it says guitar solo Yeah. and it says studio 1. Yeah. So when I'm talking to Ted, I was really adamant about this and I said, "Hey, you got to talk to me about the eruption thing." And he goes, "Okay." I go, "What room do you remember that being done in?" And he goes, "Studio 2." I go, well, "Wait a minute, that's not what that's not right. what I've been told right. and I know you were there, but you know the the bo- the, the invoices say I studio 1." Mean- and he goes, no, nope, no, nope, I remember. It, it would Studio be very, two. It would be very
1: hard so, for me to break. I, listen, I don't listen, know. Listen, I think Ted has an excellent memory, and it's very hard for me to break that tie. The only reason why I'll or he's I'll, flipping the name. I'll the give numbers. Him, maybe, I don't know. I'll give him. I'll give Don the benefit of the doubt on this one. Is because the tape box does say one, right? So that's the thing. So Don the remembers invoice one, says one, and the tape box says one. So yeah, but um, yeah, um, amazing. I mean, that's where Ted sort of talked about how he was like heard it and was like, "What's that?" You know, oh, <laughs> just that? something I warm up on or something like that. Yeah, Yeah.
2: Get the tape rolling.
1: And Don was already rolling the tape, right? Which is yeah. the, that's the classic Ted Templeman, uh, Don Landy story where Ted kind of walks in like, roll, we got to roll tape. And he's like, I'm already rolling. <laughs> you yeah, know, like he already had already, already like three steps ahead. He already saw that Ted was all animated and wanted this thing on tape. So amazing.
0: Don was very vocal about replacing Dave at the beginning as well.
1: Well, I wouldn't say vocal, man, because I don't think Don's ever been really been vocal <laughs> about anything in terms of, but I think he was, I think... The way that Ted explained it to me is that Don was very, very subtle and quiet about how he said things, but also could hear that there were. I mean, there were basically. Dave was not a traditional singer. I'll say that that he had an orthodox way of singing, and that he had not um, going to be something that basically the way he sang on the demo that Mm -hmm. Ted would say said this is just not going to be acceptable. Not like this is not acceptable. You're fired. But basically. If this is going to work, I have to think about how to make this work. And that's where Ted said in the, um, I think in the, the, the biography I did with him, he said, you know, Van Halen was like this incredibly difficult arithmetic problem at first. Like you like you, algebra problem. you like, you know, it can be solved, but you have to really think about it. And he sort of tried to, to think his way through it about how to, to basically to, among other things, to coach Dave in a way to make the things that Dave did well shine on the record the screams, the sort of the, all the stuff that we, you know, the identifiable, like Ted would say, identifiability is the most important thing in some ways when it comes to a a vocalist is that you can have, Ted gave me this great example. He said, you know, I could bring a hundred Broadway singers in through here and we would go, they're amazing, like all of them. But he's like, he wouldn't remember any of them maybe because they're all just sort of, they don't have a certain character to them. They don't have the Dylan, the Jagger, the David Lee Roth something. And he said, that's what, he said, that's what dave had is that he had among other things he had identifiability He had something very unique in the way he did things um and so yeah i, I you know i think don was just like kind of like you know, i think I, I hate to speak for don but i think tom was sort from of like i don't know if <laughs> you know, just kind of you know you're, you're, you there's there was a certain level of um roxing around in the 70s i mean you can think about any number of them and you just sort of can look and just kind of initially you're like i don't know if this is going to work um
0: he suggested sammy though didn't he he said you got to get sammy
1: Yes. So, yes. So Ted and Don were sort of mulling, like kind of, you know, maybe muttering to each other over the, behind the board and sort of like, yeah, we could get Sammy, Um, you know, and that was something that never got off the sort of off the ground, right? That was the, I think I've heard Sammy say different things about that, but from what I learned from Ted, it was that it never came to anything more than those guys sort of like going, I don't know, like, what are we going to do? But Ted said that when he would used to go, You know, he was thinking about how to work with Van Halen. He used to go out to Roth's house and watch their rehearsals. This would be in the basement of the Roth house over in Bradford. And uh, he said that you know, he's like Dave was like super smart. And you know, I realized there were things that I he's like you know Ted was a vocalist himself and said I realized that there were things I could do to sort of help help accentuate his strengths. And he said you know the lyrics and the the sense of humor. And he's like you can't just you know it's not just a matter of like pulling something out of a band and then plugging something back in. He's like you know and and. Ted's, one of the things that Ted said to me a number of times, he said, if I had pulled Dave out of that band in 1978, I would have made the biggest mistake in rock history. He said, I would have destroyed the best band that, he said, arguably one of the you know best bands in the world. I would have destroyed f- by doing that. Not that Sammy's not great, but he said there was a certain, you know, the Ed and Dave chemistry that was, you couldn't just plug a, a great rock singer in there and expect that that same thing was going to be there.
2: Plus, you said that he was a good writer.
1: Yes, that, right. For so, the band. Yeah. yeah um, <coughs> he had that ability. You know, Ted said that he would read his lyrics and go wow this is really some pretty um deep stuff he said like you know he said one of the lines he remembers that stuck with him was said if you want it, you got to bleed for it and he was like you know he's like i just thought like wow he's like that's super intense and he said you know that was the type of stuff that dave would come up with these lines and he just said that for him was a selling point as well He's like there's there's an intelligence there and he said that you know he said like he said roth was a um, I'm sure he still is. He's the type of guy who could go for about talking about, a, uh, you know, uh, Archie's comic book talking about Tolstoy in the same sentence and you'd be like, well, what? And then you realize, oh, it all kind of makes sense. Like he said he was just a superior intellect and he said that doesn't, you know, you can't just find that. You're not going to find like some guy, you know, audition 100 guys and find guys like that. And he said, so that was the, you know, he, when he sort of backed off from it and said, okay, so he's pitching on some notes or he's not doing things the way I would necessarily one and again and in fairness to ted and i think in fairness to dave dave's never presented that he, uh pretended that he was michael mcdonald right so this is like you know ted's working with like nicolette larson and michael mcdonald and like you know all of these incredible he's like you know sort of world-class vocal talents and you've got kind of kind of more or an orthodox singer so um you know i think that's where ted sort of like had to widen his his focus on the band and say there's more more to that than just like whether the guy is going to be you know um an opera singer
0: I think his personality, he really, as stated in your book, he really enjoyed spending time with Dave. He loved Eddie a lot, but he really liked Dave. This history of music, like you said, was very similar. They loved the doo-wop.
1: Yeah, he always, I mean, I think the thing was that he always said that he had a a great rapport with with all the guys. I mean, he said at the beginning especially, you know, it was like this, it was just always fun, he said, um, for him to work with, the guys in van halen but i think like you're mentioning yeah that's a great point about the song knowledge that for whatever reason dave had it was the type of guy who grew up listening to a lot of the same stuff that ted had grown up listening to um ted you know growing up in santa cruz used to listen to a lot of motown a lot of stack stuff and dave knew all that stuff inside and out and he said that was you know that was a real in terms of when we talk about you know arrangements and stuff like that that was part of what made it easy to work with with van halen and with dave is that you know, Dave understood what I was trying to trying to do was to make those guys have, you know, keep the arrangements short and sweet and make it a pop structure. Do basically heavy what would have been called heavy metal in the 70s in a pop song format. And that's what really Van Halen pioneers.
2: Yeah, you know, in your book it made it sound like as time evolved that Ted be, had a lot more respect for David.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. From the
2: initial, you know, meeting. Oh, yeah. Oh and, yeah, and he changed his mind yeah. and tune completely.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think it again, I think that's you know, at the time in 1977, what's really interesting to think about, because we were talking about this earlier, is that you have someone like Ted who he so he signs Van Halen with Molt and they sign him and they're working on finalizing the deal and whatever they finalize it around March and they come in back in April. I don't even know how many times Ted would have been around those guys. I mean it wasn't like Ted was spending every day with Van Halen. In between signing them and doing the demo, he was doing um, he was doing the Doobie Brothers. He was doing Fault Line here, so he was in here and you know he's um, doing sessions at Sunset, sessions at Amigo. He's flying to meet with artists in New York, and so I would imagine as much as he was excited about Van Halen, it wasn't as if he had a lot of time to explore it. So then he's suddenly like, okay, here's the audition. You know, they already signed them basically, and here's the now here's the here's the demo, let's, let's hear what they have. And suddenly it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is going to work. But then Ted said that, you know, he started to get into the trenches with those guys and started going to rehearsals. And again, yeah, the timeline's kind of fuzzy. I mean, you're not going to remember exactly when you started that. But it was certainly after the demo was done in April, Ted said, I started to spend a lot more time thinking about the songs with those guys. You know, I wanted to do the record and started to think about which song should we do. And of course, the record isn't done. This is a funny thing too. I said to Ted, one of the first conversations I said to him, I said, well, you know, I was proud of myself. I said, "Okay, you, you know, you signed them in February, basically, because I was able to kind of figure that out through my research, which was always had been a fuzzy detail." And I said, "You didn't, um, you didn't record them until August, right?" And Ted's very nice, right? You know, some people would have been like, "Hey, dummy," you know, I wasn't just like sitting around thinking about Van Halen. I was like, oh, he was like, I was," and he wasn't bragging. He's was like, "I was very busy." He's like, "You know, he's like, yeah. I was like, he's like, I was an executive at Warner Brothers. He's like, I go to these meetings, and you know, I'm like, you know, driving." home late at night and you know so he, you know he sort of like made it clear to him like oh like you know he had like three acts like nicolette larson, like he had all these acts going right like right he's like i'm signing nicolette larson and stuff and so you sort of realize that that was part of it probably where suddenly van halen's on his radar now he's like okay i gotta figure this out and then suddenly he starts to go and spend a lot of time with roth and yeah i mean i think the more time that went on um you know this stuff from uh you know fair warning and and he talks about the stuff in 1984 just the the uh the lyrics, and, uh, you know, how important Dave was to writing melodies as well. I mean, he says, you know, he said that, you know, a lot of times um, people have a popular conception of a song being like, well, if someone writes the instrumental parts to the song, they've written the song, just generically, like, oh, they've written a song, but if you don't have, um, you don't have lyrics and a melody, you don't have a pop song. And he's like, so, you know, um, he said, you know, sometimes Ed would come up with a melody, there'd be a melody built into what Ed had written, but other times it'd be sort of these chords, and then Dave would take it. Um, and make a song out of it and um, finish it off basically. And he said that partnership was so so amazing. He had these great lyrics and just Dave's um, musicality and creativity, yeah, and that's, that's why he didn't want the band to split. I mean, that's kind of the other end of the story, right, where he was like so in love with the, the Van Halen band that it was that he didn't like what it was gonna become, which was something, something different.
0: Again, I, I wanted to ask Ted sometime how he wanted to market that band, though. I just there's a great answer in there. It's not a simple answer. It wasn't a metal band. It wasn't a songwriting band. There was some magic there, and that's what everybody knows. That's why Van Halen's so big. And I'd love to hear it from his mouth.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't know. You know how um, how much he would have been involved with that. I mean, I think there was guys like Ted Cohen and these other guys who were sort of more involved with the the marketing of the bands at Warner Brothers. Um, I would I would say that I think ted saw them as a hard rock group that played pop songs i mean i know that we've already talked about that but i don't think there was ever like a magic i mean that's sort of the i you know i think the one thing that's interesting about that on that point is that there was an original van halen album cover done you guys may have seen it it's on on the internet that was sort of more like i call it the punk rock logo it was much more of like the it it didn't have the the the, uh, dave bang wings logo which is sort of the classic van halen logo it was much more like of a There's a black and white photo and it's more like a Sex Pistols Clash, like the Clash first Clash album. And they hated that um, and ended up scrapping that. So, you know, whatever marketing you can kind of look on the album cover, to me, it's like I always thought that was like the photos in that album cover were so great. Elliot, what's the photographer's name is escaping me. But, you know, sort of those guys sort of like having the wash of color on them and in the back, they're like kind of soaked in sweat, like from performing. It's like I thought that was like kind of captured the energy of the band really, really well in the album cover they finalized.
0: Sunset Sound has a great relationship with Warner Brothers. Tons of Warner Brothers acts in here. Prince, obviously, is in mm-hmm. Studio 3. Do you think that Ted was just so used to working in here, or did he also want to incorporate the room as the kind of fifth element of Van Halen? He knew about the echo chambers. He knew about the drum sounds from Montrose. Right. Yeah, I think he Ted Did you always- anything about keeping the guitarist away from the amps a lot, or...? Wrote, technically, did he speak about any of
1: that? I mean, I think, I think well, Ted I was, too. was, um, you know, he did a lot of stuff at Amigo, which was Warner Brothers studio. And I, I think he always said whenever he could work at Sunset Sound, he tried to. Um, so the one record that was, um, we talked about a little bit earlier was the Carly Simon record. I'll come back to that in a second, but I can only tell you that, um, he really did emphasize to me that there was something unique about the sounds that he could get us in Studio One, and, and also in this room in Studio Two, the thing he would talk about, he loved this room because he'd put the drummers in the corner. So whether it was Little Feet or Van Halen, Alex would be in the corner, Richie Hayward would be in the corner, Ted could be behind the board right there, and they could sort of s- signal the drummer, the vocal booth, right, and yeah. and be able. Everybody was in communication. Everybody was in communication. He he talked about how this. He said he loved so he you know he's I think I think for his purposes, Sunset had that. Um, Flexibility for him, and so um, whether it was like, oh, we want to get this sort of interesting sound, let's do stuff in some in one or in two. Um, but they did a, I mean, they did a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff at Amigo um, because that was, you know, that was. I, I don't know exactly how the billing went for that, but I assume when Warner Brothers owned oh, the studio, oh, I'm sure
2: it was a little more flexible, <laughs> right? I'm sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> a little employee discount, company owned studio, <laughs> right, right. So you know, if you had a big budget, you could probably afford to come here. But I mean, I was. Um, quite taken back on 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 the book and, and how complimentary he was about Sunset Sound. It was just, I mean, oh, yeah, it brought tears to my eyes. No, it was I mean, great. He, I mean, he compared us to uh, West Coast Abbey Road. Yes, yeah. I mean, it was just shocking. I mean, I know he did a lot of product in here, but he was so, uh, I don't know.
0: He was so excited. I talked to him briefly and then got you guys on the phone the other day, but he was just thrilled to even speak with you. We gotta get him in here soon. I mean, the fans—just every YouTube comment is, "Where's Ted?" I'm like, <laughs> Where's We're Ted? trying to get him in, guys. We're here with his author.
1: He's yeah. an international man of mystery. What can I tell you? He's yeah. like, yeah, he's like, who knows? He's like, maybe he's on a he's on a the Learjet flying to Bermuda or something. I don't know where he is, but he's a uh, yeah. He he's always spoke so highly of this place, and I think you know, I think part of it was that um, I, he always felt that the artists loved it here too. I mean, that was going back to the Carly Simon Big record. I, I, it's kind of. Um, an album that maybe doesn't get talked about enough because it didn't sell a ton of records, but that was done in 75 and 76, and that was called Another Passenger. And so um, this would have been after she'd done all those great records with Richard Perry, and then Ted gets a chance to do an album with her, and Glenn Fry, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Dr. John, Van Dyke Parks, um, I, a whole a host of other people come through, he said it was like, you know, it was like, a, he said it was just, you know, a constant stream of, of uh, Basically, you know, celebrity musicians coming to play on this record. They were so excited to play on this record. But you know, he talked about how, kind of that, doing it at sunset made it more exciting and gave it more of a buzz than like, oh, we're doing it at amigo. I don't know. And part of it because the way the room sounded, but I think also there was a there was a you know a certain. Um, energy, energy. Energy and something special about us. I mean, that's the thing. You know, it's the, it's goes back to the sixties stuff with the doors and Zeppelin. I mean, and, it
2: was an incredible hotbed around here of right. people flowing through the doors. Right. It, I mean still is quite honestly. Well it was, still is. But I mean it just was a rotational thing of so many people coming here every day. Yep. Yeah.
0: Jeff Jampel, the doors manager, I just interviewed him, interviews up now, and he was talking about He's like, this place is more than just a room with yeah, outboard gear. Exactly. This is like a mecca. There's a, a an energy in here. Right. There's, and there really is. I mean, right. this is why I say this to Paul all the time. I mean, every time I pull up, I'm listening to your audiobook this morning while the gates opening at Sunset Sound, and it's now cool. we're in here in Van in Studio Two, just talking awesome. about it. It's just you're never in a bad mood here. It's such an, an amazing place. And you know, and I think also, I was talking, I was telling you, Brad Wilkin uh, from Rage, we might do something Van Halen oriented. And he goes for Sunset Sound. Anything. I mean, people just—he's one of the biggest rock drummers in the world. He doesn't need to do anything, but, and for Ted to mention, he could have just said the studio, but he oh, makes no. sure to say Sunset oh, Sound. No. He probably says Sunset Sound 150 yeah. times in the book. Absolutely, that's uh, awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah he, uh, you know, again, it was, it was, uh, I think, having come in here with Lee Hirschberg. And Lenny Warner, who was—I pro- mean, I think Lenny was probably like only a couple years older than Ted. He was like 24, 25. He's a young, young producer um, to have Leon. And um, I, if I'm remembering correctly from the book, he, you know, they—they they, whatever they put the piano through the echo chamber. I don't know what exactly what did. He said like I could hear like there was something that stuck in Ted's head about those first sessions that he did there with the Wrecking Crew. And you know, all, all that Ted did was sing. All they did was he and the um, couple of other guys in the band sang. It was the Wrecking Crew did all the instrumental stuff. But he said it was just wow. something. Something special about that, and uh, I don't think he ever he ever forgot that. And again, he worked in other places in town. We talked about later. He worked in other places in town, but it was always it was always for him a first a first choice. I mean, to work if it was possible to work in Sunset Sound. I think also a lot of
0: musicians and producers, the privacy that you have in here. There's no pictures. Paul's father early on implemented that that they're in there working. Don't touch them. Don't mess with them. Don't even open the door. Yeah. and you can kind of you know it's Paul and his father the only owners of this place and the no, and, nobody yeah. else ever so it's like it's just a fun place to be it's kind of not rules but you can kind of just do what you
1: want you get the work done <laughs> it's what happens to the sunset sound stays <laughs> it's <laughs> the sunset <laughs> except for the songs yeah. the songs can come out but everything yeah. else stays in there um, that um, there was this little story i was going to tell you guys that uh so um i asked Don Landy something about the fair warning record and uh, he was talking about the basketball court and he said you know the cowbell on hear about it later i said yeah he said we recorded that cowbell out there in the brick courtyard wow. Wow. yeah that he said they said they awesome. said that the uh whatever they had recorded the cowbell in the room with alex i think I, I don't know which studio they did it and he said we wanted to see if we could make it um whatever sound louder and he said yeah we we set up and they recorded the cowbell outside at the mm-hmm. yeah so I don't know how often that was, that space has ever been used that, as a, a. I didn't know that. But yeah, That's did they record cool.
2: the cars revving up here too? Oh a... uh, no, that was done up at that was done up at Eddie's for house for Panama. Yeah, that was that was okay. the, that
1: was the last um, album before Dave left. And that was done up at up at uh, Ed's house. But yeah, the, the cow. I wanted to make sure to, to drop the cowbell knowledge on you guys. Like you can't forget about the cowbell. But yet, um, I don't know the exact where exactly where it was. But he said that yeah, we did the had the you know, reverberated off the bricks and it sounded really really great. I know they did the car Eddie's nineteen
0: seventy one Ferrari uh, up at fifty one fifty for Panama, but mm-hmm. didn't we hear that they ran something through to your parking spot and Eddie's car was there, as Volvo or
1: something?
2: <laughs> well, that's when I was bringing that up. Yeah, I, I remember I, someone telling I remember us that. something about that, but I can't remember what. So uh, they had
1: the uh, my re- recollection. Maybe this is, this is what you're referring to. Is the is the car horns for, for on running with the devil? Yeah, that. Right, they had a they had a noisemaker that they used to use at concerts. They had basically gotten a, a car battery, and they had gotten someone to, to basically wire car horns in a series with a foot pedal. So you would step on the foot pedal, and it would go bom, bom, and it was a noisemaker. And that's they they rec- I don't know where they recorded that. But that was
2: okay. That's what I think I'm thinking of. So when the horns.
1: running with the devil, when they slowed down yeah. the slowed down the horns, I don't know where exactly that was for. Re- um, According to the other thing that that you maybe can confirm the story that Ted remembered that when they went on the road, I think Roth abandoned his car here. Like basically, yeah. like he left his. Well, like, I read
2: that in your book. <laughs> oh, I, but I don't.
1: I don't it's too that. good to check, right? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't here. But Ted, Ted, you remember that? Like, he's just like you know, he just beat up. You know, like, car, just, whatever. Like, it just didn't start. He just left it there. And like, you know, like, Ted shows up for some other session. He's like, yeah, he's on the road, right? He's gone. he's gone. He's gone doing his thing. But yeah, the car horns. Um, I should ask ask those guys where that was, where they actually mic that up and did that. But yeah, that was something else too that is worth remarking. That Gene, um, they put that on the Gene Simmons demo. That it wasn't exactly the same, but it was a similar type of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So let's speak of the man of mystery
0: known as Don Landy. The fans <laughs> want to know. I want to touch down on this, and you know what a a road for you though from being in your high school Mm -hmm. listening to Jump and now you're going into the Van Halen vault with Don Landy and Ted Templeman. Can you touch
1: down on that real quick? So you're researching. Sure. It wasn't just the Van Halen vault so um, (laughs) I want to make sure no one thinks I went to 5150 on an unauthorized entry. Um, So yeah, I was lucky enough um, when I was finishing up the Ted book I needed to go to the Warner Brothers uh, tape library which is uh in hollywood to um finalize some foot i had some requests for photographs and went up and was able to look at some stuff and um don came along Don, you know don and i went up there together um i'd never met don in person before and uh it was incredible i mean it was really amazing they brought out um some old tape boxes from little feet and one of the guys in little feet i don't remember which unfortunately i can't remember which guy it was which of the gentleman might have been um really pain maybe not was an artist and a lot of the tape boxes had these sketches on them now at the time they were like well, who did the drawings and, and Don knew he's like oh one of the guys in Little Feet was an artist and so the tape boxes would have like you know hands like kind of like cartoons like 70s era cartoons right. on the tape boxes and so they just you know they kind of they brought Don out some stuff and it was it was incredible yeah it was an incredible experience i mean honestly it was um
2: and they had our sunset sound labels on some of them
1: i don't remember i don't remember that i mean i um, they basically the archivist brought them out on the table and like would kind of like you know let, let Don look at them. I, I I tried to keep my grubby hands off the stuff and just sort of observe. But um, I presume yeah, um, certainly like we talked about um, the uh, Time Loves a Hero album was done here in this room. A lot of the stuff and um, the first Little Feet record I think was done. Um, some of it was done here. Um, the second was cold, cold, cold. But um, yeah, that was that was great. So there wasn't just when we went up there. Um, and again, that was the first time I had met Don in person. It wasn't just, you know, to see Van Halen stuff. It was a whole host of stuff. They basically, you know, they were super excited to have Don up there. And um, they obviously know the history of how many albums he did for Warner Brothers. And they were tons and tons and tons of stuff and was able to kind of show him some stuff. So he was, he was, um, I think he enjoyed it. I think, I think he enjoyed it. They, You know, kind of knowing that up there they have basically a copy of every single album that Warner Brothers ever ever made. Like, you That's know, like, yeah, like, you know, wow. it's amazing.
0: Where is it? The Valley? Is it the
2: Beacon storage place, that high concrete building? It's think, in Hollywood? I don't know. The I idea. think that's where it's at. It's, okay. it's a, um, like a vault. Uh, it's, that, it's not uh, over the hill, though. It's here. No, uh, it's that cold, you know what they call it, Iron Mountain. Ah, uh,
0: okay, okay, okay. So, uh, you know, Ted's so complimentary of Don. He was giving Don a point on his albums, out of his producer's deal. Don is such an integral part of the sound. Did you really dive into the technicalities of kind of the micing and all? Did you research that stuff or?
1: I mean, the best I could. I mean, I think my, my understanding of it is like primitive and I think Don and Ted were very, very patient with me as I tried to understand. Um, you know, I, I didn't um, I didn't go too deep into that stuff with those guys, but you know, when you would talk to, to uh, Ted or Don, for example, about the Eddie Mahalan guitar sound and they would basically go, Whatever you might EQ this or do this to it, but he's like, it was the way he sounded in the room. Like, wasn't like you know Don, Don especially is like, it's you know this whole idea that there's sort of this studio sound. It's like it's partially, partially you know it's 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 true that the studio makes a difference, but it's it's the hands of the player, right? So like I was ca- I was able to accurately capture what was coming out of the speaker because we were in a great facility and had great equipment. Um, you know the other things that um, Don and Ted did talk about was um you know for example the um the way that you could you could really um move the baffles around in this room and that's nothing you know particularly unique or anything like that but basically this room like it's sort of experiment with things and um but they also had a you know i would say too about the the way they would mic things they had a i think a pretty good blueprint on what they wanted to do because they'd done so many records before it was sort of like you know i don't think i don't think Ted had to ever say anything to Don about oh I want this mic this way. Maybe if they were like playing with something to get a different sound, but it was like I think at that point it was like they almost had like Ted and Don almost had a pilot co pilot thing and they talked about that quite a bit that like basically and Don knew the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Eddie and Don would work late at night and and in your book and Ted's book, he says that's complete bullshit where they would sneak away and do solos at night and overdubs. He goes, I always knew when they were recording. The well, episode.
1: I mean I think I think Ted's point was in saying that, he said he will read things on the internet that there was this sort of, um, you know, this Omerta like sneaking around behind Ted's back to record things. And Ted always said that why would I not want Don and Ted to work together? He's like, I don't. He said, always said, I don't give a shit if they were there or not. I would listen to what they did the next day. That's fine. But he he's always said that almost always, like, you know, if we were lock, locked, you know, a lockout, we're in the room. He's like, I, I didn't go. He said I would go to dinner sometimes, and um, he also said I think. That's um, interesting to observe, too. He said, you know, some, you know." he said, for whatever reason, even if you know somebody super well, you're on your third or fourth album, you're doing Fair Warning, um, you know, you just kind of got the felt, maybe I'm making him nervous or something like that. He's pressing too much because I'm in the room and I'm the producer. So he'd just be like, I'm leaving. Yeah. I'm just going to go. I'm going to come back. Um, you know, I think... You know maybe that's what eddie was getting at when he was talking and you know, kind of referring to that was basically that he and don did a lot of stuff um by themselves but i think in some ways i mean i think that's a comp i mean in a lot of ways it's a compliment to what ted thought of don as an as an engineer slash you know assistant producer it wasn't called that but i think that's what ted would always say he was and also about um you know his, his faith in eddie that like i just need to you know the guy's good like, it you was know, just like, you know, Ted also would talk about how, you know, one of the most important lessons a producer has to learn is the one to shut the fuck up. He's like, you know, sometimes you'd be in a session with a producer and I'd be watching when he was a younger musician and they'd be just talking and talking and talking and making the person so nervous. Sometimes you're just like, oh, they're talking to the engineer. He would say that happened with Ronnie Mantras a lot. Like something would be going on and Don would be out here talking to Ronnie and he just said, I wouldn't, I'd just sit there and wait till Don came back and said what's going on? And that's okay. And just, you know, because yeah. it's like, you're like the... You can actually be um, demoralizing to the the uh, morale of the artist if you're too you know just have to sort of that's what he said you just have to sort of know it's like a psychological project as much as it is a technical project sometimes you just have to you know people have I mean that's the other thing I think I I really learned from Ted you know he'd talk about like oh you know Michael McDonald will get nervous or something I'm like what, what do you mean Michael McDonald will get nervous he's like you don't you don't understand do you I said like, no I guess I don't he's like even like super talented people have doubts. You know, he said, but he, you know, just not just Michael, it was like a whole host of people like, you know, uh, sure. um, Carly Simon would get nervous and like she would start pressing and you just sort of like, you know, they're like the greatest, one of the greatest singers in the world. How could they be nervous? And she's just like, you know, it's, it's just because you have super, super talent doesn't mean you have superhuman confidence that you can just sort of like fight your way through any sort of situation. So I think a lot of that stuff. You know, maybe if Eddie was here, he would tell it differently. And maybe if Don was sitting here, he might tell it differently. From what, you know, I gathered from that was that Ted a lot of times just knew that those guys were working. It wasn't as if it was some sort of big conspiracy theory. He just wanted the stuff to work to get done and trusted Don and trusted Ed. Even if they, go ahead, Paul.
0: Well, he said, you know, what he
2: also said to me when I was talking to him, he said, uh, you know, I know there's rumors going around that, that, you know, they would work late at night, and I wouldn't be involved, and they'd sneak stuff. He goes, that's not the case. He goes, I had 9 a.m. meetings at right. like, Warner Brothers. He goes, I'm not going to stay in the studio until 2 a.m. Right. They they know what they're doing. I'm de- right. They're doing a guitar solo or something. He goes, I'm going to hear it the next day. I'm going to confer with Don, and Don's going to, you know, we're going to talk about what we did. And he goes, I- and sometimes I had uh, meetings at night. Right. I had to leave. Right. Or I went home to see my family. Right. He goes, that's another thing. So. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean I think and that's part of the you know kind of the supreme confidence of that Ted had in in Don. I mean that was the thing. That's why it was such a great partnership was, you know, like the co pilot like, you know, the right. like the pilots pilot's falling asleep and the co pilot can still land the plane, you know?
0: That's right. Yeah. Even if they did, who cares? If they did sneak off, you know, they yeah, make I, great think, music. Because you know, Peggy I, and uh, the great Doug Messenger both said did, yeah, that's a good question. Did um Ted ever mention about the unchained Kind of battle that uh, you know, the urban legend that went down in this room, you know, or Ted stormed
1: off and I mean, Doug I, was even, in here and I listen. I I have no reason to think that that's not um, could have happened. I don't know. Don uh, and Ted never mentioned that to me. I mean, I think anybody who's been involved in any sort of creative project will realize there's going to be moments where people lose their temper and like walk off. Um, but. Yeah, I never heard that from from Ted that I stormed out of the room. But I mean, I think you would be uh, hard pressed to imagine any band situation where the people aren't going to get pissed during the making of a record. I mean, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, like really. a loser, like loser, you know, lose your temper. So, um, but you know, I think I think really Ted's overall. Um, mindset when we talked about it was just how much fun he's always it was just so much fun he goes yeah I mean obviously there were things that weren't as much fun as some other things I mean obviously but um but he always just talked about how much fun he had with those guys he said it was just always at the beginning you know and as time went on and I think as Eddie and Alex particularly had different ideas about um the way they wanted to approach the making of the records and there was that uh, a parting um that was a painful thing for Ted and I think you know a painful painful thing I'm sure for a lot of ways for Don too but, um, you know, especially he said in the early records, especially he said it was just, you know, we would they would come back to town after being on the road for 10 months and they'd be tired but they'd be excited and they had these songs. And he said it was like, it was awesome, you know, it was like, you know, he's like they were so creative and they would always come up with this, um, you know, even songs like Everybody Wants Some where there were no lyrics for, Dave would come up with this. I mean, that's what you're talking about. Like, um, having Dave sing in the vocal booth and sort of doing all of this X-rated vocals and they're like you know t- ted and don are like dying laughing knowing they can't actually ever use any of these vocals but the band is playing and there's this great vibe and you know he said that was what was fun about van halen so you know um i think i think for whatever doug might have witnessed or whoever might have witnessed in terms of bad moments i just don't think i mean i don't think ted's trying to sanitize anything i just don't think it's like stuck in his mind where he's like you know there, there were certainly things he remembered about um you know other things later when the band was breaking up and there was hard moments but in the early records he doesn't you know, he never was like, "Oh, it sucked. It was terrible." It was just, you know, it was like, great. I mean, you know, you're you're working with Van Halen and such that sound, and you're you're making platinum records and kind of consistently. It's a pretty, I think, it's pretty hard to be in a bad mood with that.
0: What did Don say about uh, the time with Van Halen? Obviously, we know what Ted said through your book and what you just mentioned right there. Well, but I mean, did Don say anything significant when you spent the, uh, you know, we've about working with Van Halen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think he worked with so many artists. Did you I say mean? I think story he had, that meant, You know. You know, whenever I talk to Don about Van Halen and the artist, I mean, I think he he talks about just how talented they are. I mean, I think that's the thing that um, it, it might be easy for everyone to kind of understand if you think about someone like Don who doesn't really like to do interviews and doesn't want to be in the public eye. I mean, he like really gives all the credit to the artist. He's like, oh, yeah. And we all know that that's not, you know, you know better than... I do. And, you know, how much a good engineer makes a difference in how a record sounds. But, you know, um, I think I think Don has great appreciation for the fact that he worked with everyone from the Everly Brothers to Neil Young to Eddie Van Halen to Ronnie Montrose to Lowell George to Michael McDonald to Tom Johnson to Pat Simmons to Van Carly Morrison. Simon, Van Morrison. I think, you know… Um, you know, I don't think Don is a guy who's going to sit there and read his own press clippings, but I think, on the other hand, I think he has a tremendous appreciation that he went from being a kid, I think grew up in Santa Monica, I hope that's right, um, you know, wanting to make records to basically um, coming up here, and I think he told me applying for a job and being sent away because he was inexperienced, and he, you know, as a young kid, and then ends up at TTG, as we talked about, then SunWest, and then finally gets to make a, you know, make music here with with um, Ted, who he had met during the Harper's Bazaar thing. So I think. I mean, I think for, for Don, it's the whole, I think he's very proud of his discography. I mean, he did some incredible stuff, a lot of albums that people, like, um, you know, people that stuff like uh, what we mentioned, um, you know, he worked on the first, the, uh, uh, one of the first door sessions, maybe outside of uh, Sunset Sound, which was done at TTG. Oh, yeah. Waiting for the Sun. He's waiting for the Sun. Yeah. You know, um, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, wow. Uh, Neil Young. No, I just re- actually, um, Don just told me a great. You mentioned Neil Young had been in here recently, right? Yeah. He told me I'll tell you a great, a great Neil Young story that Don just told me, and I, you know, occasionally I'll look through discogs and I'll write him a note and say, "Oh, I didn't realize you worked on this." He goes, "Oh yeah." So I think it was, I think it was with Lenny. I could be wrong. They worked on um, the first or second Neil Young record, and um, Don was working at. SunWest Studios at the time, and I don't know if Don was locking up. He was like, you said, the last one to leave, and there was like a knock at the door, and it was, you know, opens the door of the studio, and it was Neil Young, and it was Neil said, hey, hey Don, is your last name spelled, your first name spelled, uh, spelled with two N's or one? And he said, two. Goes. That's what I thought. They're gonna get it wrong in the liner notes. Okay, I'm gonna go fix that. And he said that. as he's Like he's a gem. He was like, like how many artists would bother like going to find the second engineer or whatever yeah. or the you know, the engineer to go and like make sure? He's like, I think I thought I knew they were misspelling your name. I'm gonna make sure that's right and made it and it's right on that. You know, because a lot of times they will say like Don Landy or right. you know with one end, but he said like Neil actually showed he got up. Right. He made it got it right. So wow. was, you know I think he's um, you know I think he's very aware that you know in the, in the whatever the 20 plus years he did it. He he really worked with you know that's pretty much the peak the pinnacle. What are you going to work with that's better? Your book was responsible for kind of reconnecting them. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of kind of quirky about that was that um, that I was able to I reached Don separately than I reached Ted, and uh, you know, and working on the Van Halen Rising book, I talked to Don once and I talked to Ted once, and then when I went to do the um, you know I started working the, on the um, Templeman biography book. I would do a little bit more back and forth and I'd be like oh you know it's email Ted and I'd say oh I just spoke to you know I just talked to Don oh how's you doing oh good good you know and there was there was just I think you know it was one of those things where I think they hadn't um, talked as much and they you know they email more now but I sort of like you know not by design but sort of forcibly, <laughs> I kind of like you know because actually Don was uh, you know uh, everyone should know I mean Beyond the photographs, Don was absolutely instrumental in making of the Ted Templeman book. You know, classic engineer, like doesn't really want any credit, but was was super helpful. Like with a lot of things, like he has, you know, um, some tape boxes and just some some paperwork and just sort of has a good memory of things and could sort of um, fill out some holes. And like, I'd be like, you know, Don, who was this, Who else worked on this record? And he'd be like, oh, I don't remember a name. And I'd go back to Ted and he goes, that's right. Don remembers, you know, Don um, was able to really fill out some stuff. So, yeah, they were That's able right. to kind of reconnect in that sort of way. But, um, That's yeah, well, they were. Uh,
0: well, Mr. Landy or Mr. Templeman, we don't even have to have cameras going. We could have a nice cup of tea for you. We'll <laughs> sit here, just have the microphones and discuss. And the door is always open. 60th year anniversary this year. We didn't get to celebrate it last year so so uh, since COVID. But we're trying to go through all this stuff and document what we can. Um, <laughs> you, like, Greg is laughing. It's, like, it's, it's, it's they
1: rolling out the red carpet. I mean, yeah, it's like,
0: yep. It's just to be honest, it drives me nuts that Mr. Templeman's right down the street and we're in here talking about him. And I think he wants to be here. I can I can feel it. <laughs> Let's kick it back to Eddie. Seventy-five, seventy-six. His guitar playing is just going to new levels. And we were talking earlier, if Van Halen 1 was made in 1975, it'd be a completely different album. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? What's what's Eddie doing in 1975
1: and 76? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, you know, I can't take um, full credit for this. I talked to a guitar player uh, who was around on the scene at that time who kind of really, I asked this similar type of question. He was like, don't you, you get it? And I said, well, no, I don't think I guess I do. He's like, all of the things that Eddie sort of became most known for the two-handed tapping the really crazy tremolo bar stuff the uh, super overdriven guitar sound like eddie was kind of toying with all those things in 75 76 he had those pieces of things but it all sort of um kind of came together for him as a guitar player in 77 And i I, you know the analogy i would use is almost like um if anyone's a fan of uh, the nfl or the nba draft they'll talk about Has a player peaked yet? Like, in other words, is someone going to be like, you know, like the, um, I live in Oklahoma now, so the classic example is kind of um, Brian Bosworth, who was like an incredible, dominant college football player, and he never really converted into the pros to be that same type of dominant player. Like, when is the person going to peak? You know, and Eddie hit that peak and then stayed on that, you know, that stayed on that level for that years following it. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about if they had been signed. I mean, I think... You can hear it on the Gene Simmons demo. It's a different. He's not doing any of the two-handed tapping, which sort of became his his trademark. And it's just it's, it's um, there's not any of the whammy bar stuff. And really, his whole you know the way he's attacking the um, the strings, even it's not quite as aggressive as he did on the on the next year. So it's just for you know just a, a kind of I think a happenstance and good fortune that whenever Ted kind of got onto them, that was sort of when they were. Um, Ascending and that at that uh, to that peak that that Eddie really yeah I mean we can kind of hear that that snapshot on um, that moment in time with Van Halen one where it's just it's just you know everyone was like oh. everybody was like jaw drops yeah
0: life has its own you have to be patient you know it just kind of runs its own course and it's just things it's like why how uh, Van Halen wasn't signed until a certain point you know it's just and that's also went along with Eddie's guitar playing.
1: Yeah, and I think the thing about with you know they work the, themselves out the sign yeah the signing thing. I mean, I think, I think, you also had someone with Ted Templeman, who had a had a big string of hits with the Doobie Brothers and had really was on the rise and had the you know um, had the. Uh, the cred inside the company to be able to go to Mo Austin and be like, "We should sign these guys." And I, you know, Mo, Mo apparently liked them. Mo Ted always talked about how Mo was into Hendrix and the Kinks and kind of liked harder rock. That was kind of like of Mo, like the Who. If Mo liked anything, that's what he liked more than the soft rock stuff. Um, but you know, I think whatever they saw that night at the Starwood, I'm not sure that Mo Austin was as sold. Maybe again, I don't know for sure. But Ted was sold, and you know, kind of Ted had the credibility to go to Mo Austin and say, "You should sign these guys." And I said, oh, okay, you know. It, that mattered. I mean, that really did. You know, it's it's. Uh, well,
2: he made the right call.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I think, and uh, you could just imagine the, unfortunately, the Starwood. I think. Well, I shouldn't say fortunately. Maybe uh, unfortunately. I say maybe. Fortunately, it's been bulldozed and it's gone. But, um, you know, you can only imagine what it was like when those guys, when that Mo Austin and Ted Templeman, walk into the back of the Starwood and it was like, "Hey, we're going to sign you guys," and just you know, so. A question about your book: Nineteen
0: Seventy Eight is when you chose. For Van Halen Rising to end, what was the
1: thought process behind that? Well, I'm laughing because like, I, yeah, um, I get that question sometimes from people, and I was like, well, if I, you know, should have told the whole story. I was like, oh, well, it's 300. No, I, I, I think, think it's I, like, cool. Like, I, like, you know, it's like, unusual, yeah, like, awesome. you, like get the Moby Dick length of Van Halen. I'm not sure anyone would be able to live that. <laughs> Moby Dick. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I learned in, in graduate school, I had a really good mentor. Her name was uh, Jackie Jones, and she's a professor, and uh, you know, she talked about. Sometimes when you write a book or you're telling a story, you know, you have to think about um, where to end it. Ended. It may not always end in, like, the, um, basically the chronological end to it doesn't have to necessarily be that spot that everyone thinks it should be. Like, in other words, why didn't you take the book up to 1984? But you know, the other thing was that, for me, that was sort of the culmination of what those guys had worked. Anyway, it sort of seemed like the natural end of the book because they had worked so hard to get the record deal and then they go out and they're able to sell two million copies of an album that really, even Ted was like, you know, I didn't know what it was going to do. He said, I didn't think it was going to sell two million copies. I thought it was a good band and I thought we would have a good foothold. Like you said, like you go to the second record. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like Ted was like, well, it's definitely going to sell, you know, it's definitely going to sell 10 million copies, but by, you know, by 20 years later, um, you just hope for a, you know a good start for something to build off of it. And so to have that be the the close of the book. I mean for me that's the triumph of what was the first whatever the first chapter in the Van Halen saga was this get the deal ending, you know, being the the kind of the wrap up and then them going on the road and coming back and being you know, being stars. I mean to go from being I thought that was so cool, you go from basically being completely anonymous outside of California. I mean really anonymous. You fly across the country to Chicago, it's like twenty below zero, you're playing for thirty minutes At 7:30 at night, with no one in the room, to the end of the tour where you're playing stadiums and upstaging bands like Black Sabbath in Boston, and uh, that's you know,
2: it's a great success story.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and uh,
2: that's that's they're at their pinnacle. Starting that was good.
0: A few more questions. Fifty-one fifty. For those who have been living on the moon, was Eddie Van Halen's studio in his backyard? His home studio, Ted. Has said that it was very uncomfortable in there. It was smaller. The room didn't sound good. Um, numerous other things.
1: Is that correct? Well, I don't know if he ever said the room didn't sound good. I think he would said it sounded different than what he liked. I think that he would, he was always very clear with me that it was a matter of taste. He said that you know what Eddie and Alex and Don were getting out of fifty-one fifty was you know uh, was something that was sonically unique but he said you know you couldn't there was no ability to generate a room sound up there and that was one thing that really was difficult for Ted. He said that's why like Sunset you you could get a good room sound. He also talked about in terms of the comfort level when 5150 again this is Ted's take on it when 5150 was being built initially it was supposed to be a demo studio and what I mean by that was Uh that it was supposed to be a place where instead of having to use a little four track tape on a coffee table in Eddie's bedroom or something, or he'd actually have a room where they could actually have a little um, ability to record, like a little tiny drum set or whatever, and just to be able to record. It said that after Don, who, with Howard Weiss, built the studio up there, and it sounded so incredible that that's when those guys approached Ted and said, we should try to do a record up here. And at the time, Ted said it was really unfinished. So you look around this room, It's a built-out, finished studio. There were exposed two-by-fours. There were things that were like wires on the floor. He said that the patch bays, the only one who could actually decipher the patch bays was Don. That Don had it all memorized. And so he said, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know about this. But he said, you know, those guys were really excited about what they were getting. And he he said, look, he said, it's a matter of taste. He's like, but it wasn't what I liked sonically. He didn't think, I don't think he meant it, he would say it sounded bad. It just was different. He said, I liked the sound of sunset. And the other thing he said that was, I think relevant here. a couple of things is number one, you know, um, you know, we look at the control room, right? It's, I'd never been in here before, but it's much bigger than I actually expected. But he, he would talk about how, because 5150 was a relatively small space. He said it was very confined. It just very claustrophobic. So he said that for him, that was a tough thing. He also said that, When he works at Sunset or he worked at Amigo, correct me if I'm wrong, Don was always on his… Right. Left. On his left. Yeah. And it's on the
2: right on the producer's table on the end on the right. And and Don's working the board from the middle to the left.
1: And at 5150 it was flipped. But you know, Ted was always, I think it it kind of goes to the nature of the friendship between Ted and Don. I mean, Ted was always very clear that he's like, what Don did was incredible. He's like basically he took like, you know, like a room and turned it into this like world class, incredibly 1980s sounding room that was sort of a, a, took things to a whole different level in terms of sonics. So he was always very careful to say that even though it wasn't what I would have preferred, you know, it just kind of to have Don have built that thing by hand. He's like, you know, Don said, but Ted said to me, you know, Don was like a pilot who could build the 747 by parts. You'd like, you know, leave the guy alone in a warehouse, you know, for two months and you come back and the 747 be together. He said that's the, t-. and then he could fly the plane. That's what he said. So he said, um, you know, for him, there was that. And he also, I think, wanted to um, try to exercise some caution with those guys to be like, look, I'd been to home studios before. He had been, for example, to Brian's, Brian Wilson's house and sort of seen what can happen when there's no meter running, so to speak. And there's not a lot of, um, no structure. No, just an ability to sort of say it's got to be done by this time. And Ted was really always the guy who was able to deliver these records on time. Um, he was an executive of the company and was responsible for these budgets. And so he also, you know, I think regardless of what, uh, whatever anyone would say about, oh, well, he's with the record company. What does he care what the band guys charged? I mean, Ted always had been an artist himself and wanted to make sure that, you know, you weren't getting billed for a ridiculous Ridiculous stuff because this stuff all sort of goes on the band's debt. So he he had misgivings about working at fifty one fifty, but he said I wanted to give it a try because I respected what those guys were so excited about it, and I knew that like Don particularly had poured his heart and soul into building this thing, you know. And that he said we just that was why. But yes, he wanted to do the album at sunset. He was kind of like I, you know, he he couldn't quite understand why, but. um they would want to do that, but he went ahead with it. The other thing that Ted has said to me numerous times, he said, you know, as much as I think that we ran into a lot of problems up there, I think if you read the book, you can kind of see what those problems were. He said, the other thing I recognize is that one of the reasons why Jump came out so great was that there was no meter running and that those guys had the time, right? They started really working on the album in, I don't know, something like, March, excuse me, like April or May of 1983. And they worked on Jump for a long time. He said, but that would be like, you know, part of the, the reason that happened was that Don was able to be behind that little board up there going, it's great, keep going, keep going. And I wasn't, you know, he, Ted wasn't up there. This was just Don and Ed just sort of like playing the stuff. And he said, I'm not sure. And I, I think, you know, it's to credit to Ted is saying that. He's like, I'm not sure if we worked at Sunset that Jump would have come out as, as incredible because we might've finished it I might have said, "Okay, this is it. We're done with the song before it fully evolved into the sort of classic that it was, with all the different parts and the you know the, the little um, things that Ed and Don did with it and Alex." So um, you know, I think that's the, the 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 basic crux of it was that Ted had misgivings about not working at Sunset with the lack of structure. Had some misgivings about the Sonics only because he said, like he said, it's like chocolate versus vanilla. I just preferred chocolate, and those guys like this vanilla. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of um, breaking with what had been kind of a consistent pattern. The only reason why with Diver Down, they worked at Amigo for part of it, I think, was because it had to be done on such short notice they couldn't get in here. They did some of the stuff here. They did some of it. Right, they couldn't do it all here only because they couldn't get in, right? That's what I think that Don and Ted both told me, that they were just, it had to be done in such a rush that they, they couldn't book the room.
0: Yeah, that's what the why it was, right?
2: I think so, yeah.
0: Do you personally think, personally, and I know you've written the book on Ted, and I think you know what I'm going to ask, that he built 5150 to just kind of ease his Of course he's not going to say, Eddie is going to say, I'm trying to escape Ted. I want to be on my own. Because he wanted, at the same time, he wanted to start producing. And that brings us to Alan Holdsworth, which, you know, he brought that to Ted. Do you think he was trying to go out on his own and he could produce himself? He had Don Landy up there with him. Uh, You know, they started running out the back door with the tapes.
1: (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I think you know. I don't think I'll tell you. Only you tell think you he what just Ted, wanted to practice. House it is, you know. Just no, I mean briefly. I think I think I think what I learned from talking to Ted was that Ted recognized that Ed was growing as an artist, and he's like, this is part of was Ed's interest in trying to um, do more stuff as a musician, whether it be the keyboards or working on the production of records. I think. The example that Ted always pointed to in talking about this was that there was a, a band meeting up at 5150 right after they had sort of opened the facility and so the four guys were up there and, and Ted came up and they were I think they were probably meeting to figure out when they were going to start work or whatever. They were up there talking and uh, Dave said, according to Ted, hey, Ted, would you excuse us for a minute? And they, he said, sure. And they all walked into the into 5150 and closed the door. And Ted said, "I didn't think anything of it. I just was whatever I was doing. I was standing outside and or sitting on the bench and just you know waiting." And uh, he said that eventually Ed came out, and he was like upset. He said, "What's wrong?" He's like, "I can't believe he would said that to you." Um, what are you talking? And Ted said, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Oh, the way he should have invited you. And I can't believe he said that to you." Like he, you know, basically the implication was that that Eddie felt angry that Dave had. You know, I don't think I don't know that Roth meant anything by it, but basically that he was trying to shut Eddie. Felt that. Eddie was afraid that Ted was thinking, oh, they're already trying to shut me out of this place. But, you know, he said that wasn't like what it was like at all. I just think, you know, um, there was a difference of opinion, especially about the keyboard material, right, that started to be, you know, I think for… It's too poppy. It should be more grouchy. Yeah, I mean, I think, and... I think, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that one of the things that, that ended up happening was that there probably was some miscommunication about things that got really um built into resentments I think I think you know Ted tried to be careful when he did the book with me to say that I thought Jump was a great song I just didn't think it fit I was afraid it wasn't going to fit with Van Halen I just thought it was going to be something that people weren't going to accept for Van Halen he's like I didn't think you know it wasn't as I thought that wow this isn't cool he's actually thought when it was finished he's like this is amazing but he's like oh my gosh if people hear this and they think, what happened to Van Halen, right? That's what he was, he was thinking as a producer, um, you know. And so I think I think that was part and parcel, you know, and again, a lot of other other issues that I think if you read the book, you can kind of pick up on that probably didn't didn't help things. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Ted is, I think, an optimistic outlook on it. I mean, the one thing he always likes to joke about is that he said at some point that he and Eddie were having a disagreement about Jump or You know, he says, like, it sounds like something, it's going to be, you know, sounds like an organ in a a basketball stadium or something or a a, a baseball. sounds like the organ in a baseball game, you know, and whatever Eddie said. And they were sort of going back and forth about this, debating it. And uh, (laughs) Ted said, he goes, well, I was right. He goes, now when you go to a baseball game, you pretty much can't ever go to a sporting event and not hear the song Jump played over the PA system. You know, he's like, so I was right. You know, of course, you know, but that's the type of stuff, like, you know, that I think, I think probably led to some, some, you know, a lot of fraying, um, you know. And again, a lot of the other stuff too probably was. Um, let's not forget part and parcel of the the split that was happening with Roth as well. I mean, there wasn't just, you know, Ted fracturing. And there was there was a there was a, 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 a kind of a double split going on there. But, um, you know, the album did get finished. <laughs> it did sell 10 million copies. So it's like, you know, you don't want, you know, you know No one wants to go to the hot dog factory, right? And see how the hot dogs are made. They just taste delicious. So let's just enjoy the delicious delicious album when it's finished and I think about the hot dogs.
0: I have a few fan questions here, if we could fire through those uh, real quick. Sure. And I agree with one of these questions already. Push comes to shove. Reggae is very big mm-hmm. at that time. Do mm-hmm. you think that was an influence on that? It's got a lot of reggae influence on it. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it was. I mean, I think that's one of the things I, um, they talked about. Uh, Roth was the, probably more than anybody else was the guy who was probably into that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, that's another... another Thing that's really kind of cool about the sunset. I don't. I don't think if had, they had done that song at fifty one fifty, it would have sounded the same. There's that, that room sound from that stuff on Fair Warning, which you know, arguably is maybe the best, along with the first album, the best capture of the of the the sunset sound, room sound there. But um, yeah, definitely reggae influenced for sure. All right, hey Greg Renoff, why
0: the hell won't they let the open the floodgates of the vault? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, (laughs) why the hell won't they let the open? I can't speak to that. I mean, I just think that um, for whatever reason, I think the band has been—I mean, the band, meaning however we want to formulate that um, now—has been over the years very um, hesitant to release archival material. You know, where a band like Black Sabbath will regularly release two and three, four LP sets of with. Alternate takes and these types of things. I, I um, you know, I, I, some years ago, if I recall correctly, Alex made a comment, sort of like, you know, the the original albums were were what we wanted them to be at the time. We worked really hard on them, and that's kind of the way I think they should stand. I don't know if he still thinks that, or that was just said in passing. But I, I mean, your, your guess is as good as mine. I, I um, you know, I, I have uh, long long advocated for uh, trying to release some of the, the things that are um, stored away. In the vault, because I think there are really um, insightful things that would really uh, broaden the sense of what Van Halen is.
0: All right, Mr. Renoff, when doing when Ted was doing Dave's solo record, how pissed do you think the Va- the VH brothers were? Do I get a rating system like very
1: pissed, like sort of one irked? To ten? One <laughs> ten. When doing Dave's solo record. How pissed were the VH brothers? I mean, I can't, I can't speak to that. Um, I would just tell you that from Ted's perspective, what he told me was that because the making of 1984 had been so, um, let's just say, um, exhausting for everyone involved, that, and also that, that he knew that there was some definitely some tension between Dave and the rest of the band, that he thought maybe one of the best things that could happen is that the band would take a bit of a break with the hopes of maybe taking six months off and then coming back and reconvening rather than trying to do what they had done, which was at the end of the year, you go back in the studio. So that was the that was Ted's rationale for doing this, the four songs with Dave on the, the EP. He said, I thought it was going to give them some breathing room. I mean, he's recently said that to me, the breathing room. He said, if I ever thought that it would have been something that would have fractured the band worse, I never would have agreed to it. He just, he said, I didn't, I think, you know, he would say that I didn't really see it as something that would be corrosive to the relationships. Um, and every band was doing solo album or solo work. Bands would do... Yeah, certainly some yeah. work. He, yeah. he, he saw like, oh okay, so Dave will do his solo project, it'll run its course by March. But you know, and the other thing I think it, that Ted would say is that when Dave started talking about the movie, doing a movie, Ted was really like, oh, I do Ted was, Ted was trying um, to not endorsed that so to speak he thought that this was he saw this as a you know as a potential problem but basically look ted wanted van halen to stay together i think everybody knows that so you know his thinking was do this solo project come back in march or april make a record um ted was then you know by that point ted had already been sort of um ed had already i think probably alex presumably had already kind of decided that don was going to produce their next record or not ted and uh you know even ted has said he's like you know to me that was less important he's like you know don can produce them. that's fine but i didn't want them to break up he like you know he was like it was less important to me that i produce the next van halen record that those guys don't split up
0: okay moving on uh if ted didn't come down to the starwood would van halen still have broke through good question if there was no ted templeman would they have found a way to make it big <laughs> in your opinion what do you think paul
2: that's a that's a hard question to answer yeah. because uh, what if you know uh, what if what if Jimmy w- Iovine found them? Yeah, well,
1: yeah, you know, would they still have been as big as they are? Would have sounded more like Springsteen or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think like you know, one of the people who uh, who supposedly was right given a heads up about Van Halen was Bob Ezrin, and he didn't. I suppose he never went to see them. I mean, I think you know i I have very um, little doubt that that in some formulation Van Halen would have been able to to have a career regardless of who produced them i I do I think we all um, recognize that Ted and Don did something special with what they captured that they didn't you know they didn't try to make the band sound like foreigner or sound like you know a band that would have been much more sanitized they made it you know, it sounded like in the album sounds like there were <laughs> sounded like what was probably going on, but there was a lot of partying going on as they made the record, and it just sort of captured a vibe. And so that was, you know, um, Ted just kind of wanting to roll tape and capture a performance, which was always um, from the very first conversation I had with Ted. One of the things he always talked about is like, you know, you want to try to get it in the first couple of takes. You don't want to make someone do something over and over again because it just it just kills the. Kills well, they the vibe. were
2: you know they were basically a live band yeah. recording they they always recorded them live right and they just built the tracks up from there right 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 if you look at the invoices or you talk to people that were associated with the the records they would start off the first week was just recording them live right and then then they go into overdub mode. so they already got the song down right and a scratch vocal or something
1: right and that was um, i think we talked about that before was that uh... ted always talked about he said even if roth didn't have the the lyrics together or something he always wanted roth Singing, he's like, you know, he very, very rarely, if ever, did we ever track the instrumental stuff without Dave singing because he said it was just part of the vibe. He's like, he'd have you know, Dave in there doing his thing, monkeying around while he sang, even if he didn't have the lyrics down yet. So, um, yeah, that was the, that was the, uh, you know, different, a different band maybe than the Doobie Brothers, right? Which was, you know, something by the Minute by Minute album. Yeah. It's much more, you know, you're doing something kind of different the way you're building up the records. But yeah, it was just like, let's roll the tape.
2: So. Speaking of the doobies, so I have a question for you that I I wanted to see if you could kind of extrapolate on a little bit more. That I read in your book was kind of shocking that that they brought Michael McDonald in to help with a song um,
1: on one of their records. Is that right? Well, they brought Michael McDonald in because Tom Johnson took ill. Yeah, no, but... Oh, the Van Halen stuff. The Van, the Van, Halen. Halen okay, Van Halen stuff. They
2: brought Michael McDonald right, in to right, help right, with right, a right, riff right, right. on a song. And then, shockingly, he realized he wasn't given writers credit. This is true. I well, mean...
0: Time out on... The, I don't remember this. Oh, Michael McDonald came in to Sunset Sound? No no no, 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 no. Michael
2: McDonald was brought in by Ted to help finish a song. And I don't know which Van Halen song. Do you remember which?
1: Yeah, song? so... Um, what ended up happening was that one of the songs that um, Ed and Alex had worked really hard on was this what became the song All Wait. And one of the, you know, going back to what we talked about with the with writing and Van Halen, and Ted talked about, you know, that there was this instrumental thing that they had written, this this piece of music, which was something that Ted wasn't crazy about, and that Dave had tried to write a melody for and lyrics and was not able to finish it but he said that it it was obviously something that Ed really wanted on the record would have been the second keyboard so jump and then I'll wait so I if I'm remembering correctly Ted called Michael McDonald at the behest of Dave or something like Dave was like I'm stuck and whatever and then maybe Ted said hey you know maybe we could bring Mike in it's like yeah call him and so they met at Ted's office um, at the Warner Brothers headquarters. Mike had a little keyboard. They had a boombox. He played the demo. Mm-hmm. And that Mike McDonald wrote, the basically wrote um, some of the lyrics and the chorus, particularly the chorus and the chorus melody, the I'll wait part. There was a, uh, Mike sang it, and those guys heard that tape. And they were like, that's it. That's it. We've got it. And so, yes, but when the Van Halen 1984 album came out, the writer's credits didn't list Michael McDonald under "All Weight," even though everybody knew who in Van Halen knew that Mike had had worked on the song. So there was um, a couple of phone calls fielded, and there was some um, some back and forth, and eventually that was rectified. I'll say that I think that for Ted. Um, you know, it, it was an uncomfortable situation. That wasn't something Ted was involved in. I mean, Ted didn't, like, write the, you know, write up the songwriting paperwork. I don't know. So
2: Michael didn't blame Ted then?
1: Well, he did initially get angry and was like, how can these guys do this to me? Like, they, you basically, you called me. Which is, how can they do that? That's right. kind of interesting. Um, I don't remember that. So, yes, Ted, I think, said for a long time it was sort of an uncomfortable thing with him and Mike McDonald. I think Mike eventually realized that, that Ted, Ted didn't have anything to do with how that they, those guys did that. That was their, you know, their, their publishing. However, the writer's credit and the publishing work that was their business. But um, yeah, that was a, a definitely a, um, something that was kind of a, a left even you know a bad aftertaste in Ted's mouth after finishing this incredibly difficult record to make. <laughs> you know, then you get this Gotta call. From, you got a call from one of your other you know artists who you know basically is being. Um, Given a heads up by his attorney that oh by the way, you're not credited on this this song that you co-wrote and uh, but it's uh, I think Mike McDonald joke said maybe they thought I was Santa Claus or something and I just dropped a present on the yeah. chimney <laughs> to them or whatever but he's like we fixed that and so it, it was a rectified but All I right. yeah I'm glad to hear it good yes good. it was so if you look at the pressings now or the, Wash the releases down. yeah it was, it was okay. yeah it was another
0: I'm on my second round of the TED book what where is that at like a lot of love chapter 13? no would have been
1: so would have been um, this would have been around the time that uh, that uh, Van Halen was breaking up, actually. Um, so this fourteen or, or, chapter. Yeah, break? it would have been. Well, it would have been. It would have been in early nineteen eighty four. Would have been a year before they broke up, but it would have been um, early nineteen eighty four after the nineteen eighty four album came out.
0: Wow, that's amazing, Michael McDonald and Van. Yeah, Halen. I mean, and
1: look. And the other point that's worth remarking is that this was this was kind of Ted's <laughs> trademark was that Ted was really really good about putting his artists together. I mean, he didn't do it a lot with Van Halen, a little bit with, we talked about with Nicolette Larson. Ed did the solo uh, on her, um, her first album. But, you know, uh, Little Feet played with Carly Simon. Uh, Mike McDonald did a song with Carly Simon, You Belong to Me. I mean, Ted was really quite good at sort of working out these collaborations. Yeah, he knew what worked with who. Correct. And he would say, hey, you should get this person in. Um, Billy Payne from Little Feet played uh, piano on some of the Doobie stuff. And so he was, um, this was kind of Ted's, um, trademark and sort of what he did. He'd be like, oh, we should get this person in. He was he was really good about that, of kind of, of finding the people he knew that he thought could do the job. Paul, here's a question from
0: for you. Mm-hmm.
1: Paul, on the Brian episode, do you still have the... This is
0: funny, we were talking about this earlier. Paul, on the Brian episode, do you still have the Porsche you mentioned driving with Ed? If so, what model and year?
2: <laughs> no, I was don't... Was it a Porsche <laughs> or a Ferrari? No, it was a Porsche. It was a, it was a 77 930 Turbo. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a very, back in the day, that was a very fast car. They used to call it the Widowmaker because uh, uh, yeah. the, the thing got tail happy
1: and you could just be dead.
2: No, Ed took me for a ride in, in my car that,
1: I, I mean, it was frightening. <laughs> well, in fairness, it was a test drive. I mean, he was thinking about it, buying. It was so. a test
2: drive, but it was like in the middle of the road with traffic in both other directions and flying down at 80 miles an hour. What street? Uh, Coldwater Canyon. Pretty, pretty <laughs> scary. Of a mountain. <laughs> yeah, for, just off the well, of wall. Well, he had to Hall. put it through his paces. I mean, he yeah, he to... did. Luckily, we didn't go off the edge.
0: Did you tell him that story earlier? Because we were discussing Ted being scared riding in Eddie's yeah. Porsche when he'd pick him yeah, up. Yeah, he told did me.
2: Uh, I talked to Ted uh, over the phone. Oh, wow. He was telling me about this horrific ride he had with uh, with, eddie with eddie and he said i'm never gonna get in the car with him again and i go well let me
0: tell you about my story he goes, <laughs> he goes oh you got one too
2: and i said yeah
0: i do wow so, anyway all right two more questions we always say we're gonna do 60 minutes and then it's three hours but this is great stuff oh it, brian keywho question <laughs> seriously brian keywho brian keywho we're going off Instagram Live. How much does the often-told VH history repeat errors or myth? Like, what are some of the
1: myths people had about their career? Oh, uh, wow, that's I mean, a great question. So many um, myths and
0: urban legends. Well, way. I
1: think, I think, wow, myths. Let me think of a of a good thing to think about in terms of um, myths. I think that they like played at the whiskey for like, I mean, sometimes a lot of the stuff would be like where they played, um, you know, one example might be like, people would be like, oh, well, they only played, you know, um, at the whiskey a couple times, and then you look at the schedule and they played for, the, for a longer course of time. Um, that might be one. Another, another one would be, here's one for you, that um, here, there's a good one, actually. So um, with Van Halen 2, Van Halen 2 was not mixed. At sunset, it was right. right you know that, right? Yeah. But a lot of people were like, oh well, they they always
2: did the whole record there. No. Right.
1: They did it at Westlake, and um, there was a scheduling conflict, and that was actually that's an interesting story because I um, when Don mentioned that to me, I I, I had either never noticed it on the liner notes or had forgotten about it or something. I was like, really? And I was like, oh, wow. He said, yeah. And he said that was one of the reasons why he he says that Van Halen 2 sounds a little bit different than Van Halen 1. He said, I had never worked at Westlake before and we were under a really tight deadline. And, you know, it, he's his point was that Van Halen 2 might sound more like Van Halen 1 if it had been mixed yeah. at sunset.
2: Because he didn't have availability of, of the echo chamber, the console, certain things so, he probably used. Yeah. Right.
1: And so, you know, yeah. it's... Um, I mean, a lot of people prefer, I shouldn't say a lot of people, there are some people who prefer The Sound of Van Halen 2 to Van Halen 1, and it's just, it's just sort of a different thing. But, yeah, that was a, that's, there's a good one. and I like that question from Brian. It took me a while to get to the right answer. But, yeah, that's the one, is that that was, I think, um, A Fair Warning, Women and Children First. And I think I think Diver Down was mixed here, too. I'm not 100% sure about that. Maybe it was mixed in Amigo. But um, that would be the, one of the big things that, yeah, that, that, um, like the first for the first for the first four albums that everything was done at sunset not really not really true. Not
0: true. Yeah. Great question from Brian. We, there was a great comment the other day. We were talking with Danny White Sound Techniques about a legendary console and their new collaboration together. But the comment said, "You guys are all great, but Brian's extraordinary <laughs> in speaking because he's just such he a knowledge of everything. You know, it's not just Van Halen, it's not just." Uh, equipment, outboard, consoles, he knows about everything and he's so yeah. poetic. Is he, is he like a match for you when you're talking about Van Halen, where you guys can really talk about stuff because he's so up to par with you? Yeah, I
1: mean, I don't know, yes, he is, He is. his knowledge is extraordinary when it comes to Van Halen. I, I will. I want to put this on the proper context. Um, Brian is also the guy who played keyboards with The Who for a leg of their tour in 2007 as well as his, he stepped in for uh, Rabbit Bundrick, who had to leave the tour. So, um, you know, Brian has a lot yeah. a lot more uh, notches in his belt in terms of achievements in life, which is a pretty sure. cool thing that he got to do that. to so, yeah, the Beatles is, book. Yeah, Brian's an amazing, amazing guy. Been, Round uh, and wound, audio. Yes. People yes. don't
0: know who he is sometimes. They just think he's like a Van Halen guy, but he's a legend in the music business. Um, he's great friends with all like the guys from Nirvana and all <laughs> kinds of cool things. Great guy. All right, one more question. Well, let's. What's your guys' f- favorite Van Halen song? Mine switched to Mean Street in the last year, which was Voodoo Queen. Voodoo Queen on the demos, and the original Voodoo Queen was the intro there, or was it just no the, the, hammer, the intro? The dunna, dunna, yeah, they dunna. just did the riff. Yeah. Okay, so they must have worked on that in studio.
1: Yeah, that was that. That would be yeah. That would be something I'd love to know more about how that was. That yeah, intro me was too. There.
0: Do you know if that was done at Amigo or here? Think it I was think all here? of
1: Fair Warning was, was done here, I believe. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, but I believe almost everything on Fair Warning was done here, all of it.
2: Yeah, I'd have to confirm it. We could look it
1: up. <laughs> we got a lot of bets going on here. Going <laughs> to have to have a fact check. It's like yeah. you know, mostly false or mostly true or something. Paul, what was the first
0: song when you're out driving your car in 1978, what was the first song you heard from Van Hill? You're like, oh, those guys are in my studio. Do you remember the first song that I liked? With the well, devil. I shouldn't
2: say that I liked. It. The first song that um, really caught me was "Pretty Woman." Really? Yeah, I really liked that song. I mean, it, it's obviously it's a classic hit, but uh, I remember the, that's the one they came in on like over a weekend and banged it out in Did this they room. To rush in here
0: or something? It or? Was, they,
2: they had to rush out a single. They didn't have an album. I think is, I think you told the story. They didn't have an album they needed uh Warner said you got to get a record out. I mean you got to get a song out. So they bet, did that and Happy Trails, I think.
1: Right. They did that. Um yeah. The interesting thing about that too with the uh they did that um intruder piece as well, which is that little instrumental thing. Yeah. And if you listen to that, it's the
0: B-side of Pretty Woman,
1: right? Yeah, it's, it, it feeds. It feeds right. It feeds into Pretty Woman, and they they needed more music for their music videos. So they went through a Pretty Woman music video, yep. and they realized that however they had storyboarded it out, they needed more music. So they did this instrumental thing, and actually, if you listen to that, there's keyboards being played, and that's actually David Lee Roth playing keyboard. So it's Eddie's playing really? guitar, like slide guitar with a beer can. Michael Anthony's playing bass. Alex is playing drums, and there's like this little kind of like spaghetti western type music, da, da, da. like that's David Lee Roth playing the keyboard. Yeah. Wow. It was a live Rivia. take. A live take, yeah.
0: <laughs> did you know yeah. Unchained was written on piano? Uh,
1: I think I did know that. I don't know which piano, but yeah, I think I did know that. Um, yeah, the, I, go ahead. The uh, the classic that the yeah, Ted Templeman appearance on the Van Halen record, and yeah, that's of course. Uh, yeah, pretty much. If I, if you're gonna pick a favorite song for the average Van Halen fan, I, I think like that's gonna be the winner, in like a lot of for a lot of like sort of like the hardcore, you know. I'm, I'm including myself in that, and I'm not certainly not saying that with any more than uh, anything less than reference for those people. But like you know, rather than say Jump or Panama, like the, the Unchained is usually in the top five or three for most people because of that the riff and everything, you know.
0: Mean Street though, where where does that lie in your top ten Van? Hals? Yeah, I mean I think
1: you know for for
0: that um, breakdown, I when I'm riding my bike, listening to that, I leave it on repeat sometimes. Cause yeah, it's the so uh, unbelievable the
1: whole that whole album in particularly just how great Ed's guitar sound I mean you know really like I said it before I think arguably that's the I mean arguably the best sounding of the first six Van Halen records Um, it's just the uh, guitar sounds and the and the the drum sounds are so great on that record and uh, yeah that's up there for me I I, you know if I was going to pick a favorite um, Van Halen song at this moment I'll, I'll go with I'll go with you know, Running With The Devil, I'll say that as my favorite. I, that would change tomorrow. I, I often change my mind on that. But, um, you know, that to me is such the, if you're going to introduce someone to Van Halen, I mean, you're going to play him Jump or Running With The Devil. I mean, I probably would start with Running With The Devil and then beat him Jump later. But, yeah. yeah. First Van Halen song I
0: ever heard was Why Can't This Be Love, mm-hmm. which my dad liked some of the Hagar stuff, but he didn't have the best taste in music. Uh, Mr. Renoff, what was Ted's pinnacle moment, winning the Grammy for Doobie Brothers? Did he talk about that at all with you? I mean, briefly. I think he,
1: you know, he had a lot of pinnacle moments. I mean, I think, I think for him, when he talked about winning the Grammy Award for the Doobie Brothers, he talked about how unexpected it was because the album, when it was finished, that band had just about broken up and in fact did break up. They broke up like just a few months, like six weeks after that album came out, they split and then they reformed. Some of the guys left, like Skunk Baxter left, so to have that be from, None of the guys, none of the guys, really loved the album when it was done either. Like there was sort of like this general, like nobody was satisfied with it. And um, to have it be sell through three million copies and have minute by minute become this um, dominant album on the charts, he said that was pretty, um, pretty amazing. Um, but you know, I think, I think you know, the other um, pinnacle moments for for Ted would probably be, you know, for him, he's always said like something like with like Nicolette and with the Doobies. Ending with Van Halen, he said, "I really loved when I saw people who were pouring their hearts and soul into the music, and they really weren't making any money, and they were just, you know, were kind of doing it for um, just for the love of it, to be able to enjoy that bit of fame. So I think, you know, he's like, especially like there was a party at I don't know if he would say this is the pinnacle, but there was a party for Nicolette at uh, Warner Brothers. She loved to roller skate, and they brought out a big cake. There's a picture of it in the book, a big cake with roller skates on it, you know. And he said like she went from being a background singer." For Neil Young to being a girl with a gold record, he said it was like it was incredible, you know. And yeah. I think for the Doobies, the same thing. To have like he said, where the Doobies are in their little house in San Jose, this little hovel they lived in, eating cold, like so he said, like eating cold beans out of cans, like heating, you know, like they were that broke to being where they, you know, within two or three years had um, toured and had, you know, had uh, Black Water was number one. He's, I think, those were the the minutes for him as a as a producer. Um, but, you know, Ted did some, as an artist, did some really cool things, too. He got to play trumpet with Louis Armstrong um, when he was in Harper's Bazaar, and he got to, like, be on television with George Burns. I mean, he got to do, you know, some pretty cool stuff. I mean, there's some pretty, pretty fun clips of Ted on YouTube if you look Harper's Bazaar. It's like, you know, it's a pretty, pretty
2: uh, When he look like Surfer Boy? Yeah, he's a surfer yeah, yeah. he yeah. to tour with the Beach
1: Boys, and so um, that was, was one of the fun I did with both. They were a lot of- Said, but I think that's a fair way to think about it was for him. He always said that was the most satisfying for people who were like, okay, like, like were, you know, Eddie's couldn't close the door of his car. He was so broke. He had the strings wrapped around. He would the door shut to me where he could afford portion. You know, I said that right. was like, satisfying for him.
2: I'll yeah. bet.
0: Amazing. I could sit here and talk with you all day, all night. and order pizza, set up little tents over here. <laughs> I think you have to <laughs> go to bed. you <laughs> Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming in. It was nice meeting you through Brian. I don't know, it was the nine months ago, and me, Paul, mm-hmm. zoomed with you a few times. Mm-hmm. I've spoke with you on the phone about Van Halen and other stuff. I think uh, your work has, you know, been recognized and people love it. It's so in depth, and you know, I, it's great that people have such accuracy from Ted Templeman too for the Ted book. You know, it's. There's no other book Ted
1: has. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, the, the volume, volume two, of the Ted outtakes. outtakes. Yeah. yeah, no, I, uh, appreciate the, outtakes. I appreciate that. I appreciate the hospitality, and yeah. uh, it was a true uh, thrill to come in here after um, years of reading and writing about this place. It's uh, there's a real a real sense of history, and it was, like I said, it just it's just yeah, it's it's incredible. Really, is incredible. So I really appreciate the hospitality. Oh,
2: thank you, Greg. Thank you so much for coming. I loved your book. I got to tell you, I learned more about Ted. Than the twenty years, you know, by reading your book, than the twenty years That's when cool to that he came in here.
0: Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, I got to give a shout out to the Van Halen news desk. I always see our interviews
1: on there. Um, they give us a lot of exposure. Do you know those guys that run that page? I do. I do. Good guys. Um, Jeff Hausman has been a Van Halen fan for many, many years, and you know has carried the torch through the good times and bad times of you know Van Halen's basically radio silence to the years when they're like touring and so he's yeah a great a great friend of mine and uh, does a really really good job at the Van Halen news desk
0: Um, next time we have to bring the jumpsuit in Paul has the jumpsuit (laughs) from He has the Van Halen jumpsuit from 1984 from 1984 it's just hanging in his closet we got we could do a whole episode on that
2: jumpsuit gracious enough to give me one that is cool
1: it won't fit anymore though Anyway, if it did, you'd never you'd wear it every day. Yeah, I could be wearing it every day. Yeah.
0: Speaking of artifacts, we're all fans here. That's why we're doing this. We're not charging any subscription. We're just putting up for fun. We want to investigate Van Halen. We have the work orders. We've printed a hundred of them, and you can go to sunsetsoundstore.com and use the code TED ten, and that's going to get you ten percent off one item, any item in the store. But the demo. Work orders are when they came in here and did the 25 tracks. We have that work order. It's a great thing for collectors, anything. You have one. I've got one. Paul has the original. Um, And then I had one other thing. Oh, the book. Yeah, we wanted to mention the book. What's the title of the two books?
1: So uh, Van Halen Rising. Yep, and uh, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. And uh, yeah, they're both available at Amazon. Um, I can do signed copies just uh, hit me up on Twitter or whatever you can find the link there and uh yeah it's uh it's really been uh, just an incredible experience to come in here I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to me about this stuff and it's in, in this room is like of all places and history here it's amazing
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Feeling Groovy was cut here. That's on set. We're going to go figure that out. Thank well, you, that's, everybody. That's next episode. <laughs> okay. All right.